Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. I'm Dude Eric Roll. And I am Seth Superstar Ultra. Dude, I can't wait to cover the news this week with the reveal of Sephiroth coming to Super Smash Bros. Ultimate and all the other Game Awards announcements. It honestly feels like dreams came true. You're not wrong about that. You know, every now and then our wishes are heard and the universe grants them. So, in that spirit... Let's throw some more holiday wishes out there and reveal our Nintendo wish lists in this week's top five. Yes! And with so much Smash talk happening right now, it's absolutely perfect that we'd already chosen to cover the original Super Smash Brothers in our retrospective discussion this week. And we're talking about another Dream Come True game in this week's Indie Showcase. Christian Whitehead's fan love letter masterpiece, Sonic Mania. Well, let's capture all this wish fulfillment energy and start the show. It's time to go all in. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. I am, you know, definitely wanting to wish a happy Hanukkah to everybody celebrating. Uh, this happened two days ago. First night started, and uh, I've been having a lot of fun with my family, and I hope everybody is celebrating and having a great time safely uh, out there. Uh, but we want to welcome new and returning listeners to All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show, where no shell is left unturned and no point is left unearned. We're happy to have you this week. Thanks for hanging out with us. Man, there is so much to get into. Uh, the Game Awards were crazy. Like, <laughs> we've got this this big list of news uh, in front of us. But before we get into that, sir, what's been going on this week? I want to say real quick, before I forget, it was a little bit of a return to spooky season for me because Detention, the first Ooh. couple episodes of Detention have been released. Episodes one and two are available now. Episodes three and four are going to be dropping tonight, actually, just a few hours after our episode ends. I need to watch that. How is it? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was going to be an adaptation. Uh, you and I initially reported that the that the movie, that the Taiwanese movie, was going to be coming to Netflix. Turns out that's not the case. They're not uh, bringing the movie over to Netflix. It's actually an original series that is set after the events of the game. However, there's still a lot of nods, a lot of direct nods, both visually and narratively to to the game. So the first couple episodes, I'm really enjoying. Definitely checking out the next couple episodes tonight. Uh, yeah, if, if you're into the horror type stuff, again, we covered Detention on our Indie Showcase back in October legitimately one of my favorite scary games that I've played in a long time. So I was really excited. Yeah. I was really excited to check out detention when it came to Netflix and it is a little bit of a slow burn. A lot of horror media is, but I recommend giving it uh, a a look-see if you're into that type of stuff. I'm definitely going to have to, because again, we love the game and and I really did. I I thought this was just going to be like a a movie adaptation. The one that's already out there that, that I also want to (laughs) see. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and I also obviously watched the latest episode of The Mandalorian. But even in addition to that, of course, in addition to that, it's gotten me back into 
watching other Star Wars stuff as well. This past Good. week, I've been watching the the prequel trilogy over. I've been going back. I never did wind up finishing Clone Wars, so I've gone back and restarted that because where I left off, I essentially kind of had to restart. But mm. going back and redoing that. But oh, the of, animated series. Yeah, the Clone Wars animated series. Oh. It's so good. I love that show so much. And then in the world of video games, I did finally reach the credits on Hades. Very happy to have to have seen that. Really, really interesting. Phenomenal song. The The end credit song is really, really good. Uh, and it, it the end of the game is, is very subversive. So mm. when I got to the end... I was ready for one thing and then something else entirely happened, which I know is the definition of subversion. <laughs> That's interesting. But yeah, it was, it was really, really interesting. Now I'm in, I guess, technically the post game, but, right. but fantastic, fantastic game. Obviously you don't need me to tell you that we will be commenting on how amazing the game is in just a moment. Just yesterday, the snow finally fell on my animal crossing Island and yes. I know you're not a big fan of snow, buddy, but not IRL snow, <laughs> not IRL snow, <laughs> but I, I do have to say one thing, the, the sound design, this is one of the reasons that sound design is so important in video games, because just the simple sound effect of the snow crunching underneath your feet as you're running around your Island is just so immensely satisfying just playing the game, it legitimately makes me feel colder just to hear that really authentic snow crunch underneath my boots as I'm running around catching snowflakes and making snowmen. Yeah. It's it's really, really good. Definitely wanting to, to, to get the most out of this event in Animal Crossing. And <laughs> you and I, finally, after some doing, we did catch our, our dung beetles. Finally, after some doing, but yeah, uh, if you're trying to catch the dung beetles, don't be so hasty in making snowmen. We did learn that our first days. Yeah. PSA. So your Island will spawn every day. Now with the snow on the ground, will spawn two snowballs. And that is how the dung beetle spawns. It will only spawn if there are snowballs on the ground. So if you do what we did and you go ahead and build your snowman like very hastily and because you're excited and it's snowy and it's awesome and you get really excited and want to build your snowman quickly, uh, get the dung beetle first. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait uh, until the next day like we did. Uh, I really need, I don't care if it's seasonal, I really need a snow angel reaction in Animal Crossing. It's kind of surprising that that's not a thing, right? I'm a, I'm a little surprised. I mean, hey, maybe they'll add it like once Toy Day gets closer. Yeah. So as you can see, I've had a very polarizing week. I've had building snowmen and Animal Crossing on one end of the spectrum, and then I've had scaring myself out of my mind with Taiwanese horror in detention on the other end of the spectrum. So I've had a, you know, and then just a huge ball of hype right in the middle with, of course, what we'll be getting into in just a moment. But what about you, sir? Again, happy Hanukkah. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, that's been going on. That's been fun. Um, Hanukkah is always always a good time, uh, and it's sporadic appearances every year. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, we've been having a good time with that, hanging out with family and stuff. And you know, it's just that, that's the thing about Hanukkah, right? Like a lot of people are just like, oh, it's just like Christmas, but it's it's really not. It's just one eight day party 
hang out with your family, eat good food, eat fried food. I respect that. So that's always nice. Good food. Um, but I will say, you know, the, the vacation's over, went back to work, sad face. I'm sorry. But uh, did play some cool games this past week. And, you know, the, the Game Awards obviously was was a huge highlight of the week, but did get to play some games. My wife and I, and a little bit of non-Tendo news, if you'll allow me to speak about a non-Nintendo game briefly. <gasps> uh, <laughs> right. there. As it turns out, there are other things than Nintendo. I mean, we're a Nintendo podcast, but other things do exist. You're fake news. <laughs> yeah. We're not completely <laughs> blind to the world outside. Um, wrong. <laughs> so my wife and I together, 100%ed bug snacks on PS4. Oh, how was that? I, dude, we loved it. We loved it. It was <laughs> so good. I love that game so much. It's just really, really briefly. Um, I, I highly recommend the game, especially if you have like a PS4 or PS5 to play it on. I think the game's also on PC and I hope Young Horses, if anybody from the Young Horses team just magically for some reason happens to be listening to this, I beseech thee, <laughs> do what you did for Octodad and bring Bug Snacks to the Switch because man, it would be a perfect fit on Switch. He's going Shakespearean with his diction. I think he's serious about this, folks. Oh man, that I said that probably 500 times when we were playing it. Like, God, I wish this was on Switch. Like, I would love to like just really do an indie showcase on it. And, uh, please bring this to Switch. Um, but the game's great, especially if you're a fan of games like Pokemon Snap, that's sort of like open environments, puzzle elements. Like you're not taking pictures of the bug snacks. You are effectively capturing the bug snacks, but the way that you have to kind of parse together how to capture them reminds me a lot of Pokemon snap. Um, it's, it's so much fun and it just has like this colorful aesthetic. The soundtrack is phenomenal, like legitimately one of the best soundtracks of the year for me. And uh, I, I just loved it. It was easily one of my favorite experiences of the year. I, I loved it so, so much. Another game that my wife and I have been playing a lot of that is available on Switch is Part-Time UFO. This game is so much fun, man. <laughs> I, it, we, we are having a blast with it. It's one of those games that really will dig at your like OCD, completionist, perfectionist brain, you know? Yeah. Because you want to get the perfect three-star rating on, on all of the stages. Each stage has a like normal and a hard variant that each have their own separate scores. And then there's like a whole swath of unlo uh, unlockable costumes for your UFO that have like gameplay benefits in a lot of cases. Um, there is an nice. unlockable achievement system in the game. Uh, there's a lot actually in this little package and we've been having a really good time with it. Are any of the, uh, different UFO skins, are they Nintendo themed? Um, I, I will say I won't explicitly spoil it, but, uh, this game is, is a how labs game. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. So I will say that there is a pretty, a handful of pretty good how labs Easter eggs in the game. Uh, and, and one of the skins is, is a how labs Easter egg. That's all I'll say. Okay, I was just wondering because uh, there's a certain character that has a certain ability in one of their games. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you'll, when you play the game, you'll see what I'm talking about. There, there is definitely a a Hal Labs Nintendo um, here and there, but but Hal Labs specifically. If you read between the lines of what I'm saying, you probably know what I'm talking about. 
but um but part-time ufo i i highly recommend it it's you know for a budget price great co-op game great couch co-op game and it reminds me i think i said this when they revealed the game it reminds me of a total like ds game um in in all the best ways just that quirky kind of ds nintendo game i I really really like it we're definitely gonna be playing more of it one last thing that i'll shout out uh before we move into the news because we've got a lot of it i don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this but um return to bird world okay is an album uh from somebody named leon chang uh leon has been working on this album for the past like four years three to four years and it is let me just tell you what this album is it is a soundtrack to a sequel to a game that never existed. (laughs) So he did back in 2017 bird world, which is, which was a soundtrack to a fake game called bird world. And now this is the soundtrack to that fake game sequel, if that makes sense. And it's phenomenal. (laughs) This is the, this is the first physical compact disc that I've bought in probably over a decade. An actual CD. I I purchased an actual CD because Leon did a physical release of the game and it is boxed up like an old PS1 game. Like the art looks like Yoshitaka Amana's like uh, Final Fantasy art. It totally calls back to that. And it includes like a 28 page full color game manual inside for this fake game. And it's it's just a beautiful package you can stream the album on spotify and stuff like this and and i highly recommend you check it out because the music is just wonderful but uh but the physical package i i just i even though i haven't bought a cd in so long it just it, it needed to be mine it's so good well if you want to own something from 1998 <laughs> yeah yeah no i i i just loved it but uh that has been what's been going on. We've got so much news to cover. I don't think we can delay another second. Let's get into it. No, let's talk about the Game Awards. Hey, listen. Obviously, the biggest news story of the week is the fact that the Game Awards was held Thursday night. And my word, what a jam-packed show this was. Good Lord. Yeah. Just three hours. No commercials, just three hours of just announcement after award after everything there was so so much going on i legitimately had trouble just keeping up with the show itself i mean there was so much that they had to fit in that there were times when they just were throwing out uh (laughs) there were just times they were throwing out awards rapid fire three four five at a time dude they were giving awards in the pre-show yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they gave out a bunch of awards in the pre-show. The best family game was given out in the pre-show, which I was surprised at. There were several awards given out in the pre-show. A lot of esports awards given out in the pre-show. But I was surprised that they put best family game on the pre-show. That I admittedly feels like it should have been a main show award. Yeah, yeah, that was weird. I, I will say, though, in terms of the show itself, I really liked it. Like, this has probably been my favorite game awards that they've done so far. I did too. I really liked it. And the format did lend itself to some really interesting moments. But uh, yeah, if, if they do this, if they're able to do this as an audience show next year, uh, I, I do hope that they take a lot of what they've learned from this year and do incorporate it into subsequent shows. So we'll see if they do. But legitimately, 
they may have to extend the show a little bit because if I was going to yeah. say anything against it, it it would honestly be the fact that it was just there was so so much. It genuinely felt it genuinely felt like a lot of stuff. Like there were a lot of announcements that would have premiered at E3, but realized that this was probably going to be their best platform. So, well, yeah, that was that was actually something I was going to say because I I do wonder if like so much of it is just us like missing that sort of big events cuz this ostensibly here at the very end of the year is the only real like massive, you know, kind of gaming event that we've had to look forward to and and I admittedly, I think I did get swept up in that a little bit. And it's really exciting just because, I mean, obviously with the the show still very much had the fingerprints of COVID all over it with everybody being at their homes and joining the show via Skype uh, or via Zoom. And it, it still had the COVID fingerprints on it, but it did still feel like one of those normal things. So uh, obviously... Even things like TGS and E3 and other video game conferences, San Diego Comic-Con, a lot of those nerd conventions, uh, a lot of those have been so hampered and even had to be postponed and canceled. It was so nice to see this show, not only the fact that it didn't have to be canceled, but really kind of went off without a hitch. Yeah, they, they came out swinging with it. I was super impressed by the way they sort of kind of managed the the show still. It still felt like a big award show. I think you got some really cool, like, you know, genuine rawness and, and just like human moments <laughs> out of the show as a result of like having, you know, people on Zoom literally reacting to themselves winning awards. I, I really liked that a lot. And it even made for some of my favorite moments of the night. You had people's phones going off. You very clearly heard people's phones going off with people congratulating them as they were yeah. making their acceptance speech. That was great. You had one winner who had no clue he was going to win. So as uh, it's <laughs> as it singled out his computer, it actually showed him he was actually drinking a beer and had to finish yeah. his beer and put it put it down so he could give his acceptance speech at an award show. There was one where, <laughs> because they were trying to socially distance, you had two developers. One was standing inside the building and one was standing behind him outside, outside the window, standing, looking in the window into the Game Awards stream. That was... That was adorable and creepy in equal measure. <laughs> I just really liked that. I really liked how it's sort of shown the human side of it. Because, yeah, like it's nice to sort of get dressed up with all the pomp and circumstance and whatnot and, and take it totally serious. And that's all nice. But it is just kind of cool to be like, you know what? Yeah, like at the end of the day, human beings make these games, you know? And there were a couple people that showed up on Zoom that my my immediate thought was, yeah, they're not wearing pants. <laughs> yeah, that dude just rolled out of bed. <laughs> yeah. But we've certainly talked enough about the show itself. Let's actually get into everything that made it so memorable. What'd you say, buddy? Yeah, let's get into it because we've got, I mean, we're going to go over some of the award winners. We're not going to uh, pinpoint every single award winner just because there's so much we'd be here for the next hour and a half. <laughs> but uh, we are certainly going to go over some of the notable ones, uh, talk about it, and and yeah, get into a lot of these news and announcements from the show because, again, it, it felt E3 level. Yeah, I mean, it really did. 
So I guess to just start off with, you know, talking about the the award winners, I, I mean, the grand prize, game of the year, the game of the year winner for the Game Awards 2020 was The Last of Us Part 2. Yep, just like the golden joysticks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, I, I was I was pulling for Animal Crossing, but yeah, it did beat out both Hades and Animal Crossing. And I mean, I gotta admit, The Last of Us in particular, congratulations to those guys at Sony yes. and Naughty Dog because they swept these awards, man. Yeah, yeah, they really, really did. Uh, Last of Us Part Two won five or six, something like that. Yeah, yeah they they took home a lot of little game award statues. So again, congratulations to Naughty Dog. Congratulations to Sony. Uh, the game may have been a little divisive to the fan base, but in terms of the overall quality of the title, that obviously cannot be disputed. Very well-deserved win. I do absolutely think you were right, buddy. If a game like Animal Crossing was ever going to win, was ever going right. to have a real shot, I think that this would have been the year. And even following the Game Awards, I did see a lot of people come out on Twitter essentially echoing your sentiment, saying right. that, you know, that this was the game, that Animal Crossing was the game that really defined 2020 and that that should have been considered, that the game should have had more consideration. However, when it comes to, again, award shows and stuff like this, I, I may have made a lot of safe predictions, but, you know, all my predictions turned out true in this case, right. but I I kind of saw the writing on the wall, especially after Last of Us Part Two won like its third award, but I was still secretly pulling for Animal Crossing to pull it out. <laughs> it's one of those things where with award shows, it's so weird because a lot of times you'll see them win like a bunch of different awards and you're like, oh, okay, so like maybe they're giving them this because they're not going to take home the top prize or maybe they're giving them this because they're taking home the top prize. So it, it was definitely the latter in the case of uh, The Last of Us. Yeah, after it won so many, it would have felt a little weird if the right. game hadn't won Game of the Year. However, that is not to say that The Last of Us was the only game that won anything that night. Uh you know, Hades might not have won for Game of the Year. However, Hades was able to take away the Game Award for not only Best Independent Game, but Best Action Game. Was happy to see that. The game is, is phenomenal, and uh, and we're looking forward to talking about it in more detail in the show later down the road. Um, but man, it, congrats to the Supergiant Games guys. Yep. Like that, that that team over there, and and you know... They've been working on this game for a long time and for it to come out and for it to be an independent game and for it to fire at all cylinders like it does and, and to win these awards. I was kind of disappointed to see it not, you know, sweep some more of these things. There, there were a few kind of like, hmm, really? A few, few, few little snubs. I kind of thought Hades was going to take more categories than it did. But <laughs> uh, but still, all the congratulations in the world to, uh, to Super Giant Games. Yeah, and especially for best action game, beating out Doom Eternal. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, good for you guys. Good for you guys. Uh, in terms of best indie game, especially since that uh, Hades was the only indie game nominated for Game of the Year. I mentioned this when we were doing our predictions, but I kind of thought that was a foregone conclusion. You know, it right. turns out I was right. But, uh, I mean, again, well-deserved. Absolutely well-deserved. I've been talking about it over the past couple weeks. Seth has gushed about it in the past. We're both huge, huge fans of not just this game, but Supergiant in general. So 
again, well done, guys. Cannot wait to see what the future holds for both the studio and even potentially the Hades game if you guys decide to add more to it down the line. I could see that. I could really see that. Um, Well, the category that Animal Crossing did come out on top on (laughs) was Best Family Game, which makes sense. Given that award in the pre-show, though. Yeah, that that does come off as a little that, that does leave a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, but I was I was still I was happy to see Animal Crossing win some sort of award. I, I think it makes sense especially, you know. I think uh Origami King was also nominated for that award. Yes. Um it would have been kind of cool to see Origami King win, but no. I mean, Animal Crossing definitely is the standout game, I think there. Oh, absolutely. And the thing that gets me about the fact they gave away that award during the pre-show is I know given everything that was going on, I know you had to bump a few to the pre-show. I understand that. However, to put a, a game of the year category, not necessarily the game of the year category, but a game of the year category on the pre-show, especially since family game, considering how many titles are family oriented how much of the industry is skewed toward that demographic it's not just nintendo anymore obviously we're talking about crash 4 we're talking about all of these really really good family games from other developers now i mean you just played one you and you loved bug snacks so i mean there's there's a all these amazing family games coming out it's a huge part of the industry and it was Again, it just felt so weird that they decided to honor the best of the best in this massive cross-section of the industry on the pre-show. So uh, in the wrestling world, we call that a little bit of a burial. <laughs> That's fair. I, I will say another one that, that kind of felt like a little bit of a burial to me was the uh, score slash soundtrack award. Yes. Now, th- now Final Fantasy VII Remake won. So again, all the congr- I love that game. All the congratulations yes. to... Uh, to Square Enix and and the team uh, working on that game and of course you know that game has been in development for what 12 years or something like that so something like that <laughs> so I mean I, I was happy to see it pick up some awards um, but yeah it did beat out Hades for best score and best soundtrack I was a little surprised by that I was like man like FF7 Remake's got an amazing soundtrack don't get me wrong there's some really great remixes in there I, I loved it but uh, Hades, <laughs> like uh, the soundtrack is so good. And to be fair, we may be a little bit biased uh, seeing as that we run a Nintendo podcast. However, uh, yes, uh, we, we do feel that Hades, if you haven't checked out Hades, uh, definitely do give special notice to its soundtrack when you play the game because it is it is very very special i even mentioned just a few minutes ago about how especially the song that happens at the end is is incredibly beautiful hauntingly beautiful so if you're able to get to see the credits on that i highly recommend just sitting back and enjoying and letting that just kind of wash over you so uh i i do think nostalgia played a little bit of mm. a role because obviously a lot of the songs from Final Fantasy VII Remake were, you know, from Final Fantasy VII in large part. Yeah. So just the evocativeness of the way that get it. just simply those songs making people feel about the fact that the game is real. It's almost like L is real for a PlayStation community. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And I mean, like, that's the thing, too, is like if they were to remake Chrono Trigger, right? And now that's a new game in 2020. And it's like Chrono Trigger is one of the best soundtracks of all time. So shouldn't that just instantly win? Is New Kid on the Block indie game really going to win stacked up against something like that? So I get it. I get the logic. But it's still, I was a little bit upset. I was like, ah, man, it would have been so cool to see an indie game take that category. Yeah, another uh, shout out here in uh, category, Art Direction, went to Ghost of Tsushima, which yes. I thought was well-deserved. Um, congratulations to Sucker Punch and Sony again for winning that award. They beat out Hades and Ori and the Will of the Wisps, uh, which both appear on Switch. And uh, and yeah, I I don't really have much to say on that. that that's a really pretty game. And I mean, Hades, of course, the art is amazing there. And, and Ori, I mean, these games are, are breathtaking to look at. But I, I did sort of see that one coming. When, when, they, when they announced the nominees, I was like, I think that this is going to be the one that, that Ghost of Tsushima takes. And yeah, it did not surprise me at all, considering the fact that Ghost of Tsushima was essentially uh, presented as an Akira Kurosawa film in video game form. I mean, right. for heaven's sake, they even put in that black and white filter to really right. make it look like an Akira Kurosawa film. So it's, that doesn't really surprise me at all. As gorgeous as Hades is, as stunning as Ori is, yeah, the the team over there at Sucker Punch was really, really able to capture the spirit of one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And for that, they, they should admittedly be be recognized. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And when it comes to the the narrative category for best narrative, uh, this is another one that The Last of Us Part Two took. Um, in competition with it was Hades, also. And I, you know, I, I don't think it was really any question that The Last of Us Part Two was going to take narrative, but it, admittedly, it would have been cool, especially with all the just the sheer amount, the unthinkable amount of writing in yeah. Hades. It, it would have been kind of cool to see them take it, but you know. Give it up. I'm not surprised that The Last of Us took that one. No, but Supergiant Games should definitely be commended for the the ridiculous amount of cross-stitched dialogue that they've crammed into into Hades. I I can't even fathom how many different permutations of conversations you, you can have in that game. It astounds me. And this was something that you mentioned months ago when the game first came out on the Nintendo Switch set is just how specifically characters will comment on stuff that have recently happened in the game. Things that you can both, you can control and that you don't have control over, but you know, things that with so many variables in place that you wouldn't possibly think that they would have specific dialogue referencing that. So uh, man, I, I can't even fathom how long those recording sessions were. Oh, Greg Kasavin's spreadsheet for his uh, writing's got to be insane. Uh, <laughs> and then in, in that same vein, when it comes to studio and game direction, Naughty Dog took that as well, um, yep. beating out Supergiant uh, in that category as well. Which again, you know, it, it was it was to be expected. Very similar thing. This one was a little bit of a surprise. I sort of saw it coming, but uh, for best debut game, Phasmophobia, which beat out both Raji and Ancient Epic and Carrion, um, which are both games that we've talked about on the show. Um, Phasmophobia, of course, has exploded just in the past like month or so, but, and maybe that's really what it is. Maybe it's just the sort of like the recency bias 
maybe plays a part in that. But um, I, I was still a little surprised to see them take that. I was too. Obviously, I played Raji the day after it came out. I really enjoyed it. Admittedly, I don't know that much about Phasmophobia. So I do know it has been very, very popular on Twitch and YouTube recently. So, you know, I, I might have to check it out. I don't personally have too much to say. I know you and I did comment that after our experience with Carrion, we, mm-hmm. you know, congratulations to Devolver Digital for being nominated. But it, admittedly, we didn't think it was going to win and we're frankly a little surprised that it was nominated, but still, I mean, it was an ultimately rather enjoyable experience, but uh, I don't know. I'll have to check out this phasmophobia and see what, uh, see what that's all about. See if it really is better than Raji. Well, in that, in that sort of similar vein of games that really kind of exploded and and kind of took over the zeitgeist, uh, Among Us, we got a shout out <laughs> Among Us yes. for its wins. Uh, it won both best mobile game and best multiplayer game, which I was like, if no Among shenanigans. Us doesn't take, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, if Among Us does not take best multiplayer game, I am calling shenanigans. So yes, no shenanigans here. And I really love the team uh, over at Among Us. They were just, they, they looked so overwhelmed and they even had one of their team members who wasn't able to join them. They had three people all within the little room on the zoom yes. call, but they had one of their other team members on zoom or on Skype on, on the phone, a, on the smartphone that they were also showing off to the camera. And that was just like that, that made my heart grow three sizes. The fact that, you know, they were going to that length just to make sure to include that other member of their team in, in the awards presentation. And it, it was very clear during the, the acceptance speech that she was trying to keep her composure. So it was yes. just, it was very just, Oh, <laughs> and that's, and that's exactly what I was talking about. That's the kind of stuff I love that human realness that we got this year from the game awards. But in another, uh, another reference to that human realness, when it came to the best ongoing game, even Sean Murray, <laughs> as we talked about earlier did not expect his game no man's sky to beat Fortnite in that category no he did not and that legitimately might be my favorite moment of the night when it cuts to sean murray's uh computer screen and he's actually (laughs) drinking a beer as he's being announced the winner of best ongoing game so he has to very quickly finish his sip and put his beer down so he can give an acceptance speech at a major award ceremony that was just phenomenal to me if they wind up doing an audience show next year sean murray has to bring a beer with him yes and i think he even commented he's like i didn't think we were gonna beat fortnite nobody beats fortnite So that was cool to see. I mean, especially with the the way that they've turned that game around and, and they've exactly. turned that into a, a real success story. Uh, I think it was well-deserved. Yeah, obviously for the first year, couple of years that it was out, it was essentially the laughingstock of the industry, the, the poster boy of overhyped and under-delivering. But just like what you said, everything that they've done with the game post-launch, the team over there deserves absolutely all the credit in the world. It has gone from, again, a laughingstock to an absolute must-play. So definitely check out No Man's Sky if you haven't. Just wish it was on the Switch as well. Yeah, that'd be cool. There's so much going on with that game, though. Um, But yeah, happy for them. Uh, Sean Murray, the team at Hello Games, definitely big congrats on that win. Um, You beat Fortnite. (laughs) <laughs> yes you did 
Uh, for Games for Impact, this is a cool award that the Game Awards have been doing for a while now. Taking home the prize for the Games for Impact Award this year was Tell Me Why, which I thought was cool. I thought it was I, I did sort of expect that they were going to win. It tells a very powerful um, kind of almost a, a trans rights commentary, uh, which is really cool with that game. I think it, it may be one of the, if not the only game where the one of the protagonists is trans. And I, I found that really cool and interesting. And, and, you know, congratulations to the team there for taking home that award, beating out Spiritfarer, of course, which is another phenomenal game, a uh, game that's made my wife cry on many occasions. Yeah. <laughs> so there was stiff competition, but uh, definitely shout out to Tell Me Why. Of course, we learned after the fact that Madeline from Celeste is trans, but this game really kind of put that out there. This is essentially right. what the game was about. This was a part of the narrative. So it is really, really nice to see, especially on the independent circuit of, you know, that that's where you're seeing so many steps forward when it comes to diversity and inclusivity, not just interesting and unique gameplay designs, but, but, but really bringing the entire world into the industry and having representation of, no matter who you are, you can, it feels like very soon you'll be able to find yourself within the realm of video games. And that's right. That, that just makes me happy. Yeah. I mean, that's games for impact, right? So definitely a well-deserved award. Congratulations to the team behind. Tell me why um, last category we're going to cover here. Of course, there are many, many more. If you want to know the rest of the winners and nominees and all this, that information is definitely available on the game awards website. But the category for most anticipated game, um, unsurprisingly, went to Elden Ring. And I think this is because this is a fan voted category. Everybody has been thirsty for Elden Ring uh, <laughs> news of any kind, really, ever since its announcement. So it doesn't really surprise me. But like I'm sitting there, I'm seeing like, come on, guys, Breath of the Wild 2. Like, how do you not want more from that? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I really don't. I was trying to think of some reason, but I, I, I can't really. Breath of the Wild, obviously, one of the still within the top five rated games of all time. And people obviously went nuts when they did announce the sequel during a Nintendo Direct. But... Maybe we should jump on the Elden Ring hype train, buddy. I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm definitely intrigued by it, and I want to know more. But man, I just I saw that, and I was like, uh, I knew it was going to win. But you know, in my heart of hearts, I was like, Come on, you guys, Breath of the Wild too for me. And I know we're biased, Nintendo podcast, whatever. But for me, I'm like, that's the number one game I want to hear more about. So <laughs> I don't know, but. Man, we have got to get into these announcements. There's so much to cover here, too. So, I mean, I, I know this is just one big old block of Game Awards news, but, I mean, this this was definitely the top story this week. So let's, let's just kind of quickly get to some of these announcements. Yeah, by far, as far as Nintendo fans are concerned, the biggest announcement that happened during the Game Awards was, I believe, the first one of the main show. Yeah. Oh, man. So Nintendo had announced prior to the Game Awards that the next Smash Brothers fighter for Fighters Pass 2 would be revealed during the Game Awards, and they wasted no time. The one-winged angel himself, Sephiroth, is coming Ugh. to challenge Cloud in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. That's so cool. It's I To be honest, and we had a lot of discourse, you know, like you thought it was going to be Crash. I thought it was going to be Ryu Hayabusa. 
I jokingly was like, it's going to be Mike Jones from Star Tropics. <laughs> but I, and, and you know, the last comment that I made as we were talking about that ended up being true. Whatever happens, it's Sakurai, it's Smash. We're both going to be wrong. The thing of it is, no matter how many insane characters they add to this game, no matter how many insane announcements they make for this game, to still be able to garner the types of reactions they do is, yeah. is really, really impressive. The hype train for Super Smash Brothers is unreal. And that may be one of the best trailers they've done so far in Smash yeah. history. Yeah. Sakurai is definitely an Advent Children fan if that wasn't immediately obvious. <laughs> well, and like there's so many cool little references to when we get the gameplay snippets of like his original appearance and Final Fantasy VII Remake also. And uh, I mean, look, when it comes to best score soundtrack, as we were talking about, the, the music of Final Fantasy VII is amazing, and I'm happy that we're going to be getting more of that. <laughs> and Nintendo teased murdering another one of the Mario brothers. Right. As like, I'm like, I can't believe they killed Mario. <laughs> Those fake outs that Sakurai's doing are pretty masterful at this point. I've got to hand it to him. But we also saw, uh, we saw a tease of Sephiroth's final smash there at the end of the trailer. We saw that Cloud apparently, it looks like, has a specific contextually final smash attack specifically for Sephiroth. Right, which is awesome. Yeah, we also saw very briefly the, the stage, the final fight in Final Fantasy VII. Looks like it's going to be Sephiroth's stage. But we don't have to speculate too, too long because we are actually going to be finding out everything we need to know about Sephiroth this coming Thursday, the 17th. Sakurai is going to have another one of his presents presentations, and we will certainly give you all of our thoughts on that next week. Cannot wait. Yeah, full details coming next week when Sakurai breaks down this character for us, and I'm sure it's going to be either a shadow drop or a not long after kind of drop. And um, really looking forward to it. That is Thursday the 17th at 2 p.m. Pacific is when that's going to be happening. So yeah, I can't wait to learn more about the character. I think it's super cool that he's being added into Smash, and I think it just goes to show that, again, we can speculate and predict all day long what what's coming next to the uh, Fighters Pass Volume 2, but at the end of the day, we don't know anything. Yeah, it really feels like nobody's off the table. It really does. Um, but as we kind of you know progress through the show, getting some of these Switch-related announcements, there's obviously a lot of things that were not coming to Switch. Um, you know, some of the stuff headed for the more you know recent consoles, PS5, Xbox Series X, we unfortunately doesn't look like are going to have Vin Diesel hunting dinosaurs on the Switch. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Dude, that Arc trailer, my God, that Arc Two trailer, rather, it's just wow. The and, Past and the Furious. <laughs> yeah, Vin <laughs> Diesel dinosaur hunter, but. <laughs> What honestly may have been more insane than the gameplay trailer for Arc 2 was the fact that, like, who who saw that cast list for the animated series, for the Arc animated series trailer that's coming? Man, Gerard Butler, Michelle Yeoh, Malcolm McDowell, Russell Crowe, in addition to Vin Diesel and others, David Tennant's in it. What an insane cast list for an animated series based on a video game. Good based Lord. Based on an independently developed video game. Man, I didn't realize Ark did that well. But we digress because as of this 
recording. Ark has not been announced to be coming to the Switch. However, maybe the cloud will make that possible someday. Yeah, but something that is coming to the Switch, we uh, we did see that Sea of Solitude, which was an indie game of some renown that came out a while ago. It, it did get a little bit of a flack for some of the issues the game had. Um, some reviewers were kind of harsh to the game, but it looks like it's actually going to be getting completely reworked and re-released as Sea of Solitude, the director's cut. And that's going to be coming to Nintendo Switch on March 4th next year. I'm interested. I, I'm i a big fan of Quantic Dream. And obviously they are huge, huge narratively focused developers. And I very much appreciate that. So uh, obviously they've done stuff like Heavy Rain and uh, Detroit Become Human. So this is very stylistically different from a lot of the games they've done thus far. However... I'm still really interested. Yeah, and there was actually a really cool-looking independent game that Shadow dropped, no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, maybe pun fully intended. The pun was fully intended, folks. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. But Shady <laughs> Part of Me, Shadow dropping onto the eShop. Uh, this game looks really cool. I'm really interested. Yeah, it does. There was a game that came out back on the Nintendo Wii called Lost in Shadow, and I'm getting really, really strong vibes of mm. that game but it's very it's much more stylistic than lost in shadow was or might it, it might just be the fact that the switch is much more capable than the wii but uh, either way it looks really really interesting it's it looks like a puzzle platformer where you're essentially trying to almost like a limbing get your shadow from one side of the level to the other while yourself trying to maneuver from one side of the level to the other. Definitely check out the trailer. Looks looks amazing. And again, it's already available on the Nintendo eShop. Uh, Seth, I think you and I may need to check that game out very soon. Yeah, it's definitely on my radar. And I think there's even a launch uh, window discount going on right now for it. So definitely give it a look. Um, Disco Elysium, the final cut. We had a little bit yes. of confusion about this. Uh, is it coming to Switch still? Is it not? What's the release date? We did find out that while it's coming to PlayStation platforms and and uh, and upgrading on PC um, in March, the Switch port is coming in the summer of next year. So it is still on track for a summer 2020, uh, 2021 release. It's kind of funny how that information came out because when the trailer dropped during the Game Awards, the Switch logo was nowhere to be seen. You right. you and I were actually talking during the Game Awards, like, oh, please come for Switch, please come for Switch. And then the Switch logo wasn't there, and you were like, Sazza Frazza Frazza Frazza. <laughs> I'm like, what? And then I get an email from I am 8-bit, like saying, Hey, you can pre-order the physical version of this of the Switch version of the game. I'm like, well, what's going on, man? So <laughs> yeah. and I, I wasn't the only one that had that question. So eventually the developers did come out and say, like, yes, it's still, of course, it's still coming to the Switch, but it is coming a little bit later than PlayStation and whatnot. So cool. I, I'm definitely going to be playing it when it comes out. Yeah. Won multiple game awards last year. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely do give it a look. See, check out some trailers, Disco Elysium coming next year to the Nintendo switch. Excited for that as well. Now, one thing I'm really excited about, and we got no release date for it, but this game from Sega endless dungeon. Yeah. Looks so cool. And that one is coming to the Switch. And that, <laughs> it's worth saying that this one specifically looks interesting, not just because of the fact that it's coming to the Nintendo Switch, but there were a ton 
of not just shooters, but team-based shooters that were shown off during the Game Awards. I legitimately lost track of how many team-based shooter trailers they showed off at the Game Awards uh, on Thursday. There were just so, so many to the point where it honestly feels like it is going to be a ridiculously saturated market. But Endless Dungeon from Sega, it really does look interesting. It really does. They started the trailer with this weird, bizarre little musical performance. And it it looks almost like Fallout meets Oddworld, kind of. I'm into it. I, I just, <laughs> I love the art style. I, I like the colors. I liked the music and stuff. And I just thought it was a really unique little title coming from Sega. And, and again, when they first showed it, I was like, oh, well, this probably isn't coming to Switch. And then when I saw the Switch logo, I was like, oh. <laughs> so yeah no release date for that but i'm i'm very interested it is definitely on my radar now next on the docket i mean this came out of absolutely nowhere yeah no kidding <laughs> because bruce campbell is returning to his iconic role of ash williams in evil dead the game and i mean a who saw that coming b it's coming to switch sometime next yeah. year so also a team-based shooter, but I, I mean, if you look at it, it's absolutely Evil Dead. They nailed the aesthetic of oh, yeah. the franchise. It looks really, really good. And uh, I think her name was Kelly. She's there from Evil Dead, the Showtime series, and the Knight from Army of Darkness. It's If you're an Evil Dead fan, I promise you this is going to scratch every itch you've ever had. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks cool. I'm definitely going to be checking it out on Switch. Um, now, we have commented plenty uh, last week when Kratos was added to Fortnite, and we reported on the leaks, the basically you know absolute certainty that Master Chief was on his way. But Master Chief and Blood Gulch were finally revealed for Fortnite, and... What is life? <laughs> and not just Master Chief and uh, Blood Gulch, the map, but Daryl Dixon and Michonne from The uh, the Walking Dead are also confirmed to be coming to this latest season. In addition to Kratos, in addition to The Mandalorian, <laughs> right. it's, it almost feels like Fortnite is trying to out Smash Brothers Smash Brothers. You can, let me just put this plainly for you. You can play as Kratos driving around in a halo warthog on your Nintendo switch. So uh, that's a thing. You know, I hadn't really put those elements together in my mind yet, but I, I, th I think my mind just broke. That's a thing that you can do now. And it was really interesting because specifically in the blood Gulch map, the master chief reveal was, was typically Fortnite funny, but when they yes. showed off blood Gulch, they had Sarge and Griff. Yes. From red versus blue to to basically make that announcement. And when Master Chief showed up, Griff became this uh or I'm sorry, when Ninja showed up, when Ninja showed up, Griff yeah. became this fawning fangirl, and Sarge was trying to explain why in the world he had a cardboard cutout of Master Chief for perfectly reasonable reasons. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh god, it's it's so nice seeing red versus blue appearances. Oh, yeah. I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing. It was a pretty pitch-perfect announcement. And, uh, yeah, I mean, more power to Fortnite. I got to admit, seeing all this stuff, I really do think I'm going to I'm gonna jump in this season and give it a shot. <laughs> I really do. I 
there's so much going on at this point. I don't know that I can stay away much longer. Yeah, I think we might touch on this a little during our retrospective, but it, you know, having all of these different fan bases, getting people from all these different fan bases, including characters from all of these different intellectual properties and getting your eyes on that product. I, again, credit to Fortnite for for doing what they need to do to continue to make their product a success. Uh, you can bemoan the the microtransaction uh, model and you I, I completely agree with so so many points that many people make about that but Fortnite is making a lot of deals they're making a lot of moves they're doing what they need to do they're evolving their game so i don't think a lot of people may have thought that Fortnite was going to go away I don't think no. based on this that Fortnite is going away anytime soon. No, as the kids say, they're making money moves over there at <laughs> Epic. So yes. they're they're leet. <laughs> yes. I think that's already a dated reference though. But <laughs> it probably is. It probably is at this point. But uh a game that I'm really excited about coming out of Austin, Texas, um, is the Ruin King, a League of Legends story. That's Joe Madrera's team down there, Airship Syndicate from Austin working on that game, the same team behind Battle Chasers Night War. <laughs> yeah. And this basically looks like Battle Chasers Night War, and I'm yeah. here for it. Yeah, it's... This game might, might possibly be in the same engine as Battle Chasers Night War. Possibly. Mayhaps. I'm okay with it. Yeah, if you had played Battle Chasers Night War, if they hadn't revealed the fact that it was a League of Legends spinoff at the beginning... Anybody who had played Battle Chasers Night War would have just assumed it was a sequel. I mean, it is yeah. the exact aesthetic. And it, when it comes to the battles, it it legitimately looks like it's the exact same setup as Battle Chasers Night War. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Right. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? I mean, and, and for those that don't know, Battle Chasers Night War is a, like, top-down, isometric, like, dungeon crawler. But the combat is very much a turn-based almost japanese influenced uh, rpg so it's really cool and and i really enjoyed it um and i'm looking forward to i'm not a big league of legends guy but i'm i'm looking forward to this so well league of legends did take multiple esports awards during the game awards thursday night so congratulations to to them for those as well yeah, absolutely. And they did come out and say, uh, Airship Syndicate did come out and say that it, it has moved out of its early 2021 initial launch window. It's now just a vague 2021 date. So hopefully everything's going well over there and we are very much looking forward to the game. Um, to sort of round out the Game Awards news, I've got a few Capcom stories here um, yes. in terms of the Switch relevant stuff. Um, we reported on these uh, a few rumors over the past few weeks one of which was that Capcom was going to be working on a Ghosts and Goblins reboot, and uh, that has now come to fruition. Ghosts and Goblins Resurrection coming to the Nintendo Switch on February 25th, 2021. I'm very excited for this. And when we say Ghosts and Goblins, I mean, we really mean Ghosts and Goblins. It basically just looks like... I, I honestly, at first, just thought it was a remaster of... right the game from the Super Nintendo, Super Ghouls and Ghosts. Right. Because, I mean, my lord, does it look like it. It's It really is what that aesthetic would be if it were created now. It honestly looks like an independent game, but 
I mean, I enjoyed Ghosts and Goblins on the NES. I love Super Ghouls and Ghosts, both very famous, very classic games. And it's been so, so long since we've seen Sir Arthur in anything other than a Marvel versus Capcom title. I mm-hmm. am here for it. I am too. It's cool to see these kind of like old school franchises come back and stuff like that. And I, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to playing it. These games are notoriously hard, of course, but yep. um, I'm looking forward to seeing what a modern version of ghosts and goblins looks like. And uh, you know, uh, as far as we know, um, I think this might actually be a timed switch exclusive. So I, I'm looking forward to it. We'll see. I can't wait to see everybody rage online on Twitch and YouTube trying to beat this game that have never played the originals. Right. This game's too hard. You know, it's <laughs> like, well, yeah, so is the original. Get good. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we had growing up. We just had get good. <laughs> yeah, but the original has a rewind function on the Super Nintendo app. Oh, you poor child. Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> well, Speaking of those kind of old school arcade experiences, also coming in February from Capcom is the Capcom Arcade Stadium. And this is an interesting little project that they've got here. It's going to be a free download title on the eShop. And essentially the way it works is it's kind of set up like you're in a little virtual arcade and you're going to start with a free copy of 1943 Battle of Midway. And there are 32 other games available at launch that can be purchased piecemeal from within the app. So they showed off like Street Fighter 2, Strider, Bionic Commando. Um, And yeah, it's a neat idea. Yeah, Xbox 360 actually did something almost exactly like this uh, about a decade ago on again the xbox 360 you you had essentially this virtual arcade that you could walk around and you could walk up to a machine and if you already own that game then you could start playing that game but if you would walk up to a machine it would give you the option of purchasing that game and then from then on you just had you know you, you could play it whenever you wanted to but they they packaged it they framed it within this Again, a virtual arcade setting. And I, I liked it. I thought it was a really, really good setup. I didn't wind up buying too many of the arcade games there. But I'd be, I'll be very interested to see what Capcom does with their own take on this idea. It's a cool art- alternative to you know spending 30 40 bucks or however much they would have charged for this whole cloth. Um, and having like, you know, half of the games be something you don't care about. You know, it's kind of nice that you can kind of come into this arcade stadium thing and buy the games you actually want to play. So I, I like the idea. Um, I I hope that it is kind of well presented. I hope the games are good versions. I hope that everything is snappy and runs well. And and I hope the process is easy because uh, if everything if everything kind of comes together nicely, this is definitely something I'm interested in. Oh yes. Um, but finally, uh, Capcom also brought a new trailer for Monster Hunter Rise, which of course is the Switch exclusive Monster Hunter game coming out March 26th that I am so excited about. Um, they have actually announced that the game is going to have a limited demo uh, hitting the eShop sometime in January. Uh, they say that that, that date is going to be coming soon, but uh, all we know now is January. They also showed off two new monsters uh, that are going to be making their debut in Monster Hunter Rise and uh, man, the game just continues to look awesome, and I'm going to lose so many hundreds of hours of my life to it. Yeah, I know all the people out there that spend so many hours on Monster Hunter World are just telling themselves, well, we we need to find a Switch now. Basically, my cousin uh, put like 800 hours in a Monster Hunter World. Good Lord. Yeah, and he legitimately, like he owns a Switch, but he is definitely primarily a PlayStation gamer. He's like, I will be dusting off my Switch 
for Monster Hunter Rise. Like he is going to come back to the Switch for that game. Uh, so yeah, I I can't wait, man. I'm excited. I am very, very excited. Yeah, absolutely. And just real quick, speaking of the Game Awards, before we move on, I know this has been a huge block of Game Awards news. It was definitely the uh, definitely the the big talking point this week. But I did just want to highlight the Game Awards eShop sale that is currently running. Uh, highly recommend that you guys give it a look. Uh, there are some actually rare discounts. You, we do not often see first-party Nintendo titles get discounts. You can currently grab titles like Super Mario Odyssey, uh, the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and Fire Emblem Three Houses, like big first party titles for a discounted price. Um, highly recommend that you do that because again, Nintendo does not do this often for their first parties. So um, a rare opportunity that I recommend you uh, take advantage of there. Um, there's also a ton of independent games and stuff like this. A lot of the games that were nominated are on sale. Uh, so again, just check out the eShop and, and see, what, uh, see what's uh, sticking out to you. And also, just really briefly, um, Nintendo of America did announce that they are permanently discounting uh, and dropping the price of both Dragon Quest XI S and Dragon Quest Builders 2 by $10. So those games are now $49.99, uh, both excellent games, uh, Dragon Quest XI S in particular. I've sung its praises a bunch on the show. Um, that That is definitely worth it. Again, uh, you know, Nintendo... These games hold their value. These games do not get discounted often. So I implore you to to check it out. Yeah, I would certainly love to see a couple permanent discounts for some Nintendo games. But yes, Nintendo is uh, very, very protective of its franchises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out not just in that regard. So yeah, uh, we we do have a couple relatively uncomfortable stories to get to really quickly here. Uh, over the past week, Nintendo did make a few controversial decisions in regards to their overprotectiveness, arguably, of their franchises. This past week, hashtag save smash, hashtag free melee, and hashtag free Splatoon all trended on Twitter because of decisions that Nintendo uh, made in regards to, again, being arguably overprotective of their intellectual properties. There was an online tournament, what would we say, Seth? The Big House Online? That was yeah, a tournament? the Big House Online 2020. Yeah, their first ever online tournament. Yeah. And they were originally going to play Super Smash Brothers Melee, which 20 years on is still a ridiculously uh, popular tournament game, you know, to play. But I guess they didn't go through the right channels. They didn't dot all their I's and cross all their T's. And Nintendo said, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to have Smash Melee as part of your tournament. Right. So this, this kind of came from Nintendo cracking down on them for wanting to use an emulated version of the game because of the nature of the tournament, obviously taking place online. This is a 20 year old, you know, GameCube game. So they could not feature this game in an online capacity without emulating it. Um, So I, I get that. And, and, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of animosity there and Nintendo, uh, issued the takedown. Um, and, and yeah, there's been a lot of people who, who, you know, the Twitter hashtag took off and, and this even bled into the world of Splatoon as a Splatoon tournament was taking place that got canceled because Nintendo did not cite this as the reason for it being canceled, but it's like, okay, it's because a lot of the people who were competing actually changed their handles to like hashtag save smash and free melee. So it's actually like bled into other games. It's it's become kind of a big deal over this past week. Even 
the the late fan favorite YouTuber Etika has been brought into this whole mess with with Save Splatoon, and that just kind of made everything a lot more uncomfortable for everybody. It was it was a huge nightmare to be honest with you. The it just kind of seemed like Nintendo this week sort of uh, had a wild hair to go around and issue takedowns and 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 do some copyright protection stuff. And you know, my opinion of it is, and, and we'll certainly talk about it. But my opinion of it is just on the face of it. And I think these are issues that we need to tackle separately. Um, but in terms of the Smash and Splatoon thing, um, it's not great. I wish Nintendo had handled it differently because I think that the the cachet that you get, the goodwill and the good optics that you get from a fan base perspective is more valuable than protecting your 20 year old game. You know, that that's sort of how I feel about that, where it's like, yeah, they're emulating the game. Yeah, of course, Nintendo doesn't like that and they want to hang on to their copyright and stuff like this, but you know, and, and I get it, you know, especially when we're talking about a for-profit tournament when like money is being like thrown around and stuff it is a little uncomfortable, but I still feel like, I still feel like the, the goodwill is worth it. You know? Yeah. We took EA to task a while ago for their seemingly incessantly intentionally horrendous decisions when it comes to a lot of their business practices. We took EA to task over their inability to, to see optics. And ultimately I think we've got to do the same with Nintendo here. Uh, you're absolutely right. I would say at the very least, you need to try to work with the people because obviously this is an extraordinarily passionate fan base. And even if right. you believe the absolute worst of what these people are trying to do, listen, Nintendo, we understand. We understand. We all still laugh about the CDI. We get it. It's still a sore spot for you. We understand. But uh, you, you you can't let one bad experience ruin your entire you know, ruin every relationship after that. Didn't mean to give yeah. everybody relationship advice there, but. <laughs> well, when it comes to Philips and Nintendo, yeah, definitely it was a good corollary. <laughs> that's, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> but we, we understand, but Nintendo should, it, it shouldn't just be yes or no. It, there, there should be more right. of a dialogue. There should absolutely be more of a dialogue. I wonder if because of COVID, I honestly, I, that probably wouldn't do anything because Nintendo has always very been famously black and white about, about this, but I, I would, I would implore Nintendo to, to try to find more compromises, to try to find more middle ground because there are so many passionate fans of your products out there, you know, try to help facilitate them more you own the rights to the games yes you can control where they appear yes but you know people want to play these games they want to take part in these tournaments they love what you've created so you know try try to come you know 10 15 20 percent of the way with them on things please yeah yeah again i think it's you you have to weigh that you know is it is it worth you know how how much are you really losing? How much of your of your brand of your intellectual property? How much of that are you really losing by allowing this to happen? Versus how much you're gaining in the eye of your fans. Now, I I typically am supportive of companies protecting their IP and protecting their copyright and stuff like this. And 
and I'm in a sense supportive of Nintendo doing this, but it's one of those things where, and especially when you look at the Etika situation and just for, for full transparency, the situation there is they issued a takedown of the Etika, um, unofficial like Joy-Con skins that say the word Joy-Con boys on them, which is the, you know, the Etika kind of catchphrase and Nintendo issued a takedown on that because it was being sold and it, and it used their trademark term, which is Joy-Con. So it's like one of those things where are you in the right legally? Yeah. And I go back to that big Lebowski quote. You're not wrong. You're just an hole. <laughs> it's one of those things. I, I, I mean, yeah, we, you know, Nintendo, we're big fans. We really are. But uh, criticism where it's due, we think that you need, you, you should be working with people on this stuff. And especially with the Etika situation, because he was such a beloved personality and he was such a huge advocate for your products. Uh, yeah. And the proceeds of this, a lot of the proceeds of those sales were going to suicide awareness charities. So it, again, it's optics. It's optics. You know, I, again, I support protecting copyright and I, I support this stuff, but you can't just put a blanket policy on all this stuff. You've got to take it, as I said earlier, on a case by case basis, you've got to treat these things with care and you've got to consider the response your fans are going to have to it. I don't know. Yeah. Even if, even if worst possible case scenario, you heard somehow that, uh, Atticus friends were just doing this to to try to make money off of his name and none of the money was actually going to proceeds. I'm not remotely saying that was the case, but even if you thought that that might potentially be the case, you still should have known what it was going to look like and you still should have tried to find some middle ground. You still should have tried to find a way to make it work to your uh, satisfaction. Yeah, because that's another thing to consider too. Before just before we move on, like the you could have spun this to be a good positive PR thing for yourself. You know, you could have said, "Hey, like let's work on a redesign for the Etika." If you were so concerned about the copyright, like let's let's work on a redesign together with the your like let's make an exception or or even donate to the charity in question or something like that. You know, they they could have really turned it around for themselves versus just putting the ban hammer down, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the big thing about this is it did seem like it should have been an easy win for all sides. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. There's been a lot of that sort of negative talk going around, but I I do hope that things change in the future. And and I do hope that Nintendo kind of like takes a lesson from this and, and does kind of loosen up on some of their policies. Cause a lot of this stuff does feel like they approach it from a black and white no, it's our copyright. You know, you're, you cannot use it sort of a, a blanket policy on it. And I do hope that in the future, they, they just sort of, you know, loosen the tie just a smidge. Yeah. Games are meant to be fun. They're meant to be enjoyed by everybody. Yep. Yep. That's how the story water quote goes. And I, I think that that is, um, I think that's an important mantra to look at this stuff at with, but, uh, anyway, moving into some more pleasant waters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to go into the full uh, November NPD breakdown next week on the show. Uh, we actually did have NPD numbers come out just yesterday, so we haven't had a chance to really parse them all out yet. And we really want to give it the time it deserves. And, uh, you know, there's been no shortage of news this week. So we are going to cover that uh, next week on the show. 
But uh, one thing I did want to shout out was something that did come out earlier on in the week. Nintendo did report that they sold 1.35 million Switches in the month of November, despite new console launches, and has maintained its number one spot for the 24th consecutive month. So that's that's something just uh, worth spotlighting there. <laughs> yeah, despite the fact that the PS5 and the Xbox Series X have hit the market Nintendo, the Nintendo Switch still outsold both of them. And this was something you and I both said when those product I mean, delays yeah. when those product delays were being announced. They said people are going to buy what's there. People are going to go out to stores, they're going to buy what's on the shelves. You can't sell it if they can't buy it. It's as simple as that. And Nintendo saw that opportunity, and they went for the jugular, man. And I think it's just going to continue. And uh, we'll see how much that, because we reported on their partnership with Sharp to increase production of the Nintendo Switch. Yep. So uh, despite the brand new console generation launching this past month, we could very, very conceivably still see a Nintendo domination in terms of console sales numbers. Be very, very interested to see how the next couple months do pan out in that way. But for this past month, Nintendo still on top, despite shiny new toys coming from both Sony and Microsoft. Yeah, so we'll definitely get into the full MPD breakdown in terms of software sales and analytics next week on the show. But we did just have to highlight that because that's an incredible statistic. The fact that despite PS5 and, and new Xboxes on shelves, Nintendo was just there. They were there for the crowds that were wanting to buy. So, uh, and, and, you know, speaking of wanting to buy... Oh, God. How many are you going to get? Yeah, so they announced, Nintendo announced that the (laughs) Banjo-Kazooie, Byleth, and Terry Bogart Amiibo are coming March 26th. By the way, that's the same day that the Monster Hunter Amiibo are coming out. Yep. Uh, I'm at least getting two Banjos. You're Um, at least getting two? Not 10? Not 20? (laughs) At minimum, I... I know that I'm going to have one for display and use or, or one to have on my shelf one, you know, and I'm going to have one still in the box. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get any more. going to have one for the bathroom, one for the car, <laughs> yeah. one for your office. There's of course a Banjo-Kazooie shrine in every room of my house. <laughs> going to have uh, one so. that you can <laughs> glue to your ceiling over your bed so you can see it when you wake up. I mean, I, I think my wife and I are going to rededicate our vows so I can use it as a wedding cake topper. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, joking aside, I mean, yeah, give it to me. I I'm so ready. It's, it's bizarre. It's, it's so bizarre. I, I, I wake up every morning and I can't believe that Banjo-Kazooie's in smash. And I, uh, I, I can't believe I'm going to have an amiibo of them. And it looks so beautiful. And shout out to that gorgeous Banjo-Kazooie animation from the Sephiroth trailer. Oh, so good. It was so good. Another thing that I am super hyped for, this was something that we posted earlier this week, but the Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the complete edition, did finally get an actual date. We've only got to wait yes. one more We've only got to wait one more month for that. It is coming out next month, January 14th, 2021. And really interesting side note, Brian Lee O'Malley even mentioned that he was trying to work on a physical edition of Scott Pilgrim. This is something that you have mentioned multiple times, Seth, that if Limited Run had basically partnered with Brian Lee O'Malley, that you thought it would be their best-selling product ever. So that may actually be in the works. Snipe that. 
just snipe <laughs> it. Just take just that. That is such an opportunity. And I know there's probably logistic nightmares involved with that. We've, you know, we've talked to Douglas Bogart of, of limited run games about that. That was a great interview. You should go back and listen to that. I know we've shouted that out many times over the past few weeks, but um, I mean, really like the, the logistical nightmares involved with getting some of these physical editions made should not be understated. And, and I know that that's probably the case here, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you if, if, and when a physical version of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the game exists, it is going to sell like hotcakes. Like the fact that this game has already been delisted. I think there's a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of people who are like, well, I better get this game physically before it gets delisted again. You know what I mean? And and I think that really strengthens the argument of physical games as a generalization. Yeah, obviously we are both big physical fans. We try to get as many physical releases as we can. Of course, we're big fans of limited run games. And, you know, with this week kind of all being about wish fulfillment, maybe you guys could do that little little thing for us there, LRG. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> we would certainly love that. But just here before we move on, don't forget to check us out on social media at All In Podcast on Facebook, at All In Podcast on Twitter. And do please subscribe to All In a Nintendo Podcast on whatever service you are listening to us on. Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for hanging out with us each and every week. Reach out to us. Let us know what you thought of the Game Awards. Let us know about all the games you wish would have made the cut for the Game Awards. And speaking of wishing, it is the holiday season. And it's got us thinking about a lot of things on our wish lists. A lot of dreams that we would like to see come true. And that's kind of been our mindset this past week. So when it comes to the indie showcase specifically for this week, we decided to talk about a game that was for all intents and purposes, a wish come true for millions and millions of fans. Something that was effectively a fan game for all intents and purposes. Now this might be a little controversial, but our indie showcase this week is Sonic Mania. Yeah, so Sonic Mania, I know that there are going to be a lot of people listening to this right now thinking to themselves, well, hang on a minute. Guys, you're talking about the indie showcase. You're talking about an independent game. And Sonic Mania is not an independent game. Well, that is not technically true if you think about it. Now, we we did have this conversation. We have thought this out. And it does seem kind of odd because the game, of course, is published by Sega, and Sonic is, of course, a major character, a legendary, iconic video game character. So it is strange to cover a Sonic game in the Indie Showcase. But Sonic Mania, folks, is 100% an independently developed video game. Now, when you talk about the people involved with this, the studios involved, when you talk about Headcanon Games and Pagoda West Games these sort of two chief developing arms of this game. Both of them describe themselves. Both are self-described independent game developers. Literally here on their website, for both Pagoda West Games and Headcanon Games, they both describe themselves as being independent game developers. So even though it's published by a major publishing arm, it is developed by an independent team. And the game's development is really interesting, and we're certainly going to talk about that. Oh, yeah. But 
it is worth noting that, you know, even though it may be a little bit strange, maybe, you know, pretty unique. And I think that's honestly what drew us to this for the indie showcase. Um, yeah. Sonic Mania is technically an indie game. You're absolutely right. It is a unique game, not just within the realm of independent games, but just in games in general, really. After many years of, let's say, less than stellar releases from the Sonic franchise. <laughs> Charitably. Charitably, yeah. Christian White had, had been doing some great work, uh, not just on fan games, but on ports and on moving Sonic to iOS and different platforms like that. So that's how he got on Sega's radar. That's how he got on a lot of people's radar. But he had been doing independent work on additional Sonic content. And after so long, after so many years and so many installments, so many games of Sonic games, not really being able to recapture that magic from the Genesis, eventually it just kind of felt like Sega said, okay, Christian, we've tried everything else. You know what? Do your thing and we'll stand behind you when you do it. And Christian Whitehead, for all intents and purposes, just said, I got this, Sega. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the even the game's title, you know, references the development team's maniacal fandom. It's, you know, uh, by the mania for the mania is what they said <laughs> about the game. Um, this game feels like Sonic Mania feels like an absolute checklist of just everything that go that would go into making essentially the perfect Sonic game. Like everything from Christian Whitehead's involvement being, of course, a prolific member of the Sonic fan community and stuff like that from having like the game with an animated opening and ending sequence by like Tyson Hesse, the artist of the Archie comic series the soundtrack by T Lopes and the hyper potions music in the game. Like it, it just fires on all cylinders. And this game just feels like it goes down the list of like anything that would exist in the hopes and dreams of a Sonic fan is in Sonic mania. <laughs> you know, I will never forget seeing the reveal trailer for Sonic mania. Like, it, act oh. it actually, it actually gave me chills because Again, just like you were talking with T-Lopes and Hyper Potions and their insane soundtrack. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but genuinely, the soundtrack in this game is one of the best of all time. The soundtrack of this game is worth the price of admission alone. And the song that they used for the reveal trailer was just absolutely pitch perfect it the the way it you know built the hype the way it built a crescendo as the animation faded into the gameplay and we saw the the gorgeously animated 2d 90 style pixel art the return to form for sonic as the music just just started bumping and thumping and we just see sonic running loop-de-loops and jumping around all kinds of different classic and new environments it, it, it again, it had been a long time for Sonic fans since they had a game to really get behind. And even with all the different trailers that had come out that made people think maybe this game could be good. Maybe we can get our hopes up that this Sonic Unleashed or that this Sonic Colors or maybe this reboot of Sonic the Hedgehog here in 2006. Maybe that's the game that really gets Sonic the Hedgehog back to what he used to be and just time after time those games just 
fell so short of expectations, but there was just something about that trailer for Sonic Mania that just immediately across the entire internet said, no, this is the one. And like announcing it on like the 25th anniversary event, like it just, you couldn't write this. Like it's almost too good to be true, but it is true. And Sonic Mania does exist. And it is just as amazing as all of those things we just said would imply that it is. It's one of the very rare instances where they just let the fans go to work and you got a diamond out of that machine. I mean, it, it's a stellar game. It is my favorite Sonic the Hedgehog game. No question. No, I completely agree with you. It's absolutely my favorite Sonic game as well. And that, you know, that not hyperbole of all the Sonic games that have ever come out spinoffs main series reboots what have you sonic mania is the pinnacle of sonic gameplay and for those few people out there who may not have played sonic mania it is just a 2d platform it is very much just a callback to the original trilogy of sonic games on the genesis but it is done to perfection and that's that's really it the the original sonic trilogy the games were so fun and so engaging and the speed aspect was so gripping that for a while for an entire console generation in fact it really looked like sega might get the upper hand on nintendo right with sonic really at the forefront of that entire original console war so people have been trying to recapture the magic of those old Sonic games for years. And the jump to 3d obviously didn't really pan out very well for the blue blur and kind of continues to not pan out very well for the blue blur. However, the 2d Sonic games, even the, the, the handheld ports, the 2d Sonic games were still pretty good. The Sonic advanced titles were pretty good. The handheld ports of Sonic Colors and Sonic Generations, they were pretty good. Sonic Rush and Sonic Rush Adventure on the DS, I was I, I thought were really, really good titles. But they just couldn't get a console Sonic game to work. And it turned out all they needed to do was go back to Sonic's roots. And I mean, geez, I, how many superlatives can you really throw at a single title? It's back to basics in all the best ways. And I, I know, and I, I feel like this is something that we should say too, just in terms of the way that the game is laid out with its stages. I know a lot has been made about how the game does kind of reuse and remix older stages from the series history. But like the, the game has such a, it really does feel like the greatest hits of Sonic's history with a bunch of new content also in there. And like, I, I just don't see how anybody could be mad at that. Like when you talk about Sonic's level design, I mean, it is still just as good as, as it's ever been. I mean, like the speed aspect of it is still totally there, but there's something about Sonic that I've never been able to like really get a grasp on or articulate, but somehow every time you play it, you feel like you're doing the right thing. <laughs> like you feel like the level was designed for like exactly the way that you're playing it, even though there are dozens of different routes through the level. It's really impressive. 
And the different routes, that was something that really stood out with the original Sonic trilogy was the fact that you could take the high, middle, low, and even sometimes underground routes in these stages. You could switch between the different tiers and jump here and there. Yeah. And there were a ton of different ways that you could approach any level. And the levels in Sonic Mania are even bigger than the ones from the original trilogy, from those old 2D Sonic games. There's a lot to do and that's one of my favorite things about replaying through sonic mania because i've played through sonic mania probably 10 times just trying out different routes and going out of my way to say no i took this path last time let me see if there's a different way i can approach this level and i'm still finding consistently still finding new things discovering new paths and new gold rings and new power-ups and new loop-de-loops that I hadn't seen before in the game. Uh, And that alone gives it a ton of replayability, aside from the fact that the gameplay, it's just a dream to play anyway, just from the way it handles. It's an absolute dream come true just from a control standpoint. It feels great. I mean, it it feels just as good as it did back then, if not better. Um, I, I love... I mean, I just, I love all the returning zones. I love all the new zones. It's, it's just pitch perfect with all that. I love the boss fights. The boss fights in this game are amazing. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There's a boss at the end of each stage in the game. There's kind of, I guess you could call it a mid boss at the end of the first act of each zone. And then you have the, the real, the true boss at the end of act two of each zone. And speaking of the boss fights, they did add some new characters into Sonic Mania. You've always had Eggman, of course. You've always had Dr. Robotnik. But for Sonic Mania, they've added in the hard-boiled heavies. Yes. And there are five of them. And for five of the different zones, they serve as that zone's primary boss fight. But, I mean, I like them. They've got a lot of personality. I do hope they return. As far as non-Eggman boss characters go, it might just be the simple fact that they're in Sonic Mania, but I felt that they came off better than a lot of other attempts, specifically those weird alien things from Sonic Lost World. Those immediately come to mind. But I enjoyed the hard-boiled heavies. I I thought they were really fun and really good additions to the Sonic lore. Yeah, I liked it too. Well, and it's like... There's just some some kind of beautiful simplicity about that that again harkens back to the original games where like they don't have to be like in your face with like personalities and stuff that the personality just comes through by things like animation and by their boss fights and and I mean like this game shakes up the gameplay in so many ways and the the boss fights are just so fun and like each one is is like vastly different from the last. Yeah. I have so much fun uh, doing the boss encounters in this game. It honestly is like one of the highlights of the entire experience for me. Uh, you're, you're constantly doing something new. There are some, I'm not going to spoil them, but there are some very unexpected gameplay changes with some of the boss fights. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's just an absolute delight, man. They're so good. Dude, I popped off so hard when that boss battle happened. Yeah, I was like, no, no, shut up, no. Yeah. That was one of my favorite gameplay moments that year. 
Oh man, it's so good. And that that actually, you know, all the different references and the nods. It's, I mean, these guys are these guys are showing their sonic love in this game constantly. There are constant references and nods and cameos and Easter eggs in Sonic Mania from uh, Metal Sonic, of course, shows up because he shows up in all the Sonic games. But even the first time that he shows up when there's like that hologram of him stepping on, you know, a little bunny right. rep, even that's a reference back to Sonic CD. Just just little knowing nods. And of course, different characters show up from uh, old Sonic games. You had Fang the Sniper. Uh, you've got a couple other characters that showed up in Sonic the Fighters. For those three of you out there who've played Sonic the Fighters, a couple of those characters make cameos in in Sonic Mania. Uh, just as I'm playing through the game, just noticing, oh, that's cool. I remember that from that game. Oh, that's cool. I remember that from that game. Oh, that's cool. I was, oh, man, I really am a nerd, aren't I? <laughs> These guys get it. These guys just get it. And like I said this to you, and and I'll say it again here, this game is like the Mandalorian of Sonic games. <laughs> <laughs> and and what I mean by that is that it is just like when you let the fans, the diehard fans have the reins, they just produce like the ultimate fan thing. You know, it just becomes one of the very best of the series it belongs to because it has the direct involvement of people that grew up with this and people who have such a deep rooted passion and love for this material. And that shines through so brightly in, in, in every facet of Sonic mania, man, the bonus stages return. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, even just talking about the bonus stages, uh, those are like something out of a Sega Saturn game. They're fantastic. They're so terribly polygon pixelated. It's wonderful. But it's the best. But, but even going further beyond that, there are multiple playable characters in this game. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's go ahead and transition. Speaking of the multiple playable characters, if you somehow have never gotten into Sonic Mania before, definitely get the Sonic Mania Plus version of yes. the game. Because you want to talk about some references, you want to talk about some deep cut <laughs> Easter eggs, some deep cut characters showing up. Oh come on! You mean you mean like your your grandma doesn't know Mighty the Armadillo and Ray the Flying Squirrel from <laughs> from Sega Sonic the Hedgehog, that arcade game with the freaking rollerball? <laughs> Everybody knows them. I that was amazing. And the funny thing was, when Sonic Media came out, there were a lot of people. I saw a lot of people on YouTube and on Twitter saying. You know, this would be the perfect platform for those characters to come back, specifically bringing up those characters multiple times. And sure enough, after Sonic Mania had been out for a little while, they announced the Sonic Mania Plus DLC expansion, which is only five bucks, by the way. Oh, my goodness. And they show off Ray and Mighty and people just lost their minds. Like, even if they hadn't already been singing the praises of Kristen Whitehead, Head Cannon, Pagoda West. It's, this was just the final, just just the final mic drop, really, in terms of the the game's development cycle. Saying, you know, what little was left that could have possibly been done with Sonic Mania, they did, and 
Obviously, you've got Sonic and Tails, you've got Knuckles, and you can play through the game as any of them. You can play through the game as Sonic with Tails. You can play through the game with Knuckles, but you can also now play through the game with Mighty the Armadillo, Ray the Flying Squirrel, and their interesting and unique abilities like the Drop Slam and the Super Mario World-style flying mechanic that Ray has. And then there's just all kinds of, of little things in addition to that. But... Oh man, we we we're kind of all over the place on this. We apologize, but we really just cannot sing the praises of this game too often. But with Mighty and Ray came a even came a new gameplay mode. Yes, encore mode. Yeah, you're talking about the bonus stage is what made me think of that because the encore mode is very similar to the main game. They do change up some things very notably. Uh, I really do like the encore uh, the encore mode because of how it handles lives. Right. Uh, A lot of games, and Crash 4, I think, is a really good example of this, where games are trying to move on from the the traditional life system because people feel that it is a little archaic and a little, we've kind of outgrown it, essentially, as an industry. So what the Encore mode in Sonic Mania does is really, really interesting. You have as many lives, essentially, as characters that you've uh, unlocked, essentially. And the bonus stage in Encore mode is completely different from the bonus stage in Mania mode, the normal gameplay mode. And you can unlock different characters through the bonus stage. There are different power-ups that allow you to lock extra characters from the, the crates that you find in the overworld. But if you lose a character, then you've lost that character. And you switch to yeah. another one of the characters in your group that you've unlocked. Now you can re-unlock that character, but if you lose your entire party, then you've lost the game. Game over. So you do have to know how to play as each of the different characters if you're going to succeed, or you can just not get hit, I guess, if you're that amazing at the game. But <laughs> it, you know, there is a lot similar with Encore mode, but the new bonus stage and the the character switching mechanic, I, I think does does enough to keep it fresh. Yeah, there's definitely enough there to warrant checking out. And and yeah, like you said, they did have to change up some of the levels fairly notably just because that's how different Mighty and Ray are, um, which, you know, makes perfect sense. And and yeah, it is it is completely worth it. If you're going to get the game, and we highly recommend you do if that's not obvious, uh, definitely make sure you're grabbing Sonic Mania Plus because the DLC is a required reading. Yeah. Uh, not only the encore mode, not only the extra characters, the the extra stuff that you can unlock in this game, just the extra little things that you can unlock in this game beyond the bonus stages, beyond the the special stages where you can unlock the bonus emeralds, beyond the Sonic 3 throwback bonus stages where you can unlock gold and silver medals. You can unlock an entirely new game mode that we won't spoil for you. You can unlock and Knuckles mode. Very much a throwback, obviously, to Sonic and Knuckles from the Sega Genesis, where you can have Knuckles following you around, even if you're playing as Knuckles, which is amazing. Knuckles and Knuckles modes is it's, it's so funny. But you can unlock different abilities for Sonic. They gave Sonic a new drop dash ability in this game, which I think really was the logical progression of 2D Sonic's moveset. But you can unlock his 
uh, jumping spin from, I believe, Sonic 3 and Knuckles. And then he's got yeah. uh, his Sonic CD ability, which you could also unlock. There's just so many, so many little things in the game. Again, each one of them a knowing and loving nod to Sonic Past. Just, oh. It's pitch perfect. And, and I do have to make special mention. We have already sort of talked about it. But just to reiterate, the soundtrack yeah. is, uh, I, I just, I, I've got to circle back to the soundtrack because it is amazing. The soundtrack by T-Lips, not only from the like returning tracks, the sort of remixes of, of old tracks and rearranged kind of compositions, but the new stuff um, the, from, you know, from the new zones. I mean, like the first time I saw the Press Garden Zone. Oh, I love Press Garden. That's that's probably my favorite, if not my favorite, it's definitely my se- my second favorite zone in the game. Yeah, and, and the track there is brilliant. I mean, the entire soundtrack is brilliant, and I just you've got to pay special uh, special attention to the music in this game because, as you said earlier, it, it is one of the very best. Yeah, legitimately one of my favorite video game soundtracks of this century. I'm not somebody who listens to a ton of video game soundtracks in his off time. I know, and I've thrown a ton of praise at games like wander song and other titles, but uh, this game came out when I was still managing the game exchange. And legitimately I had the Sonic mania OST on loop essentially at my store constantly for Lord knows how long I, Honestly, do not know how long I listened to that soundtrack because it just never got old. The sound, every track was an absolute banger, just top to bottom. T Lopes, dude, oh man, you're amazing. (laughs) I I can't say enough good things about it. And I mean, just like everything in the game is to, and I know that we're sort of all over the place and we're just sort of gushing because this is one of those rare, I think, indie games where like, and just games in general where it is the sort of thing that you just have to gush over. It is the sort of thing where like, you can't even believe it exists, not just the the circumstances of it existing, which we've already gone into, but just the fact that it exists and it is as good as it is. And like, it's just this timeless thing that we can just have forever now. And it's just wonderful. And everything about it is to such a high degree of polish and to such a high degree of execution that I'm just like, I, I, I'm just like in awe of this game. <laughs> Even the few small things in the game that really suck make me love the game a little bit more because there are a couple small things in the game. Specifically, if you get caught between a couple blocks, then regardless, that's an instant death. Some of that old jank from the original Sonic trilogy, where if you oh, get caught sure. between a couple blocks, even if you're supersonic, you can just instantly get killed. And you just look at the game through the side of your eyes like, come on, game. But you know, you know they left that kind of jank oh, in yeah. there on purpose, you know, just to stay true to it. And I mean, you know, there's the things, I'll say this, the one thing I will say, if you are not a fan of Sonic, this game is not going to change your mind. This game is not for you if you're not a fan of Sonic. But if you are... My God. I mean, it is just rainbows shooting out of your eyes. Um, there, there's the stuff, you know, of course, you know, underwater level jank is is still in there. You know what I mean? It's yeah, stuff like that is always going to be present. They, they didn't like remove that. The, the things that 
were frustrating then are still frustrating now. But again, like you said, that sort of adds to the charm. I'm sort of glad that it's still there. Yeah. Admittedly, the section where you fly on a plane does kind of suck, but really that's, that's the only thing that I can really say against this entire package. It is, it is just shy of being the perfect game. As far as I'm concerned, it plays like an absolute dream. It looks like an absolute dream. Even with those little couple extra frames of animation, they added in to Sonic, the characters, even the power rings to give them just that little extra uh, smoothness to it. The game sounds like a dream. It's even got, you know, you've got all of the different game modes. It's not just the normal story mania mode. You've got encore mode. And even without the DLC, you've still got time attack and competition. You've got the extra game modes that we've already talked about. And even the game itself, most Sonic games are like seven zones long. You've got seven zones, two acts, but this game is 12. It's al- right. it's almost twice the length already of a normal Sonic game before you throw in the fact that it has five playable characters before you throw in the fact that you can unlock different abilities before you throw in the fact that there's dozens of different paths that you can take through each level. Uh, I have played through, like I said, this game 10 times and honestly it has not, it, it still hasn't missed a beat for me. It has not stopped being as fun as the moment that I first turned it on. Uh, if you are remotely a Sonic the Hedgehog fan at all, this honestly is a dream come true game. You said uh, off mic, and, and I just am inclined to agree that this is one of the best games that you can play on your Nintendo Switch. Yes. And I, I just want to reiterate that. Yeah, it is one of my favorite games on the platform. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the best games you can play on your Nintendo Switch and it is technically an indie game developed by fans with official backing from Sega utilizing the iconic Sonic the Hedgehog character and it fires on all cylinders and it's an absolute dream come true. What do you guys think? Please jump over on Facebook and Twitter and gush with us about Sonic Mania or tell us, you know, we're idiots for thinking this is an indie game. Oh, Seth and Eric, Christian Whitehead is cashing Sega's checks. That means that it is clearly by definition, (laughs) not an indie game. You know what? We'll have that conversation with you as well. Regardless, we just want to talk more about this game. If that has not already been made abundantly clear, Sonic Mania is just, again, almost the perfect game and we cannot recommend it highly enough and you know talking about wish fulfillment talking about dreams coming true and things that we would love to see and things that we hope we get to see with it being the holiday season you know wishing is just something that kind of happens you get toward the end of the year and the holidays going into the new year and you know, you've just got that that holiday wish mindset. And, you know, we've been thinking a lot about other games, other dreams that we would like to see come true. So we decided to put them together for you in this week's top five. So for this top five, we are talking about the top five five games we would love to see 
come to fruition. We are not talking about games that we would like to see come specifically to the Nintendo Switch from other platforms. We've done a list on that. You should definitely go check that out. This list is going to be all about games that don't exist, but we are wishing on a star that one day they become a reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope uh, I hope our good friend that listens to every episode, Doug Bowser, has his notepad ready uh, because, <laughs> because we have got some wishes. We've got some hopes and dreams we would like to relay. And I'll start us off here with my number five. So for my number five, I'm going to go with, we, we all know, I, it is no secret that I love The Legend of Zelda. It's my favorite video game series. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, the first video game I ever played was the original Legend of Zelda. It has been with me my entire life, quite literally. And it means a great deal to me. You know what, buddy? I think I, th- I think we're getting a new core Zelda game. I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> I think we are too. Okay. What uh, What does shock me is that there are not enough spinoffs, I don't think. And one of the things that I sort of think of with Zelda in particular, and, and one of the things that, you know, this, this kind of discourse has gone around for a long time on the internet. What would a Zelda spinoff look like? You know, where else could they take it? Of course, we just got Hyrule Warriors, Age of Calamity, the sort of Musou spinoff. We've had things like Link's crossbow training, but I want something that I, I encountered on the internet. Somebody did a fan made 64 bits on YouTube, and I'll link to this video in the description. 64 bits on YouTube did a paper Zelda turn-based RPG. And ever since I saw that my imagination has just run wild with the concept. And it was just such a strong proof of concept that I have just wanted it ever since it fits so perfectly. The paper aesthetic, the sort of craft aesthetic fits Zelda so well. We sort of got a little bit of a blush of that with the Link's Awakening remake. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, Zelda already is an action RPG, but to see it in that sort of like turn-based Paper Mario style just like really struck a chord with me. And I I just really feel like Zelda could go so many different directions than it has. Like this series is just, I think, ripe fruit that has not been properly cultivated in some ways. Of course, the mainline games are amazing. Of course, the remakes are good and all this, and the remasters are all good. But we could go so much more experimental, and we could have so much more fun with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for my number five, Paper Zelda. You know what? The second you said Paper Zelda, I was just immediately able to see in my mind what Paper Link would look like. I don't know. There's just something about that that I think you're right, just immediately lends itself to to the aesthetic and to the gameplay mechanics. So I, I've never really thought about that before. I'll have to check out that video you're talking about, but man, I could really see that if you add Zelda and maybe even Ganondorf as an antagonist playable character, like they did with Bowser and super Mario RPG, they, you know, did some stuff off. I could see that. I really could. It just really captured my imagination. Just the concept of it. The fact that we really, you know, criminally don't get that many interesting spin-off Zelda games. Uh, ever since I saw it, I've just wanted Paper Zelda so bad. And I know it's like a really specific niche, you know, fan thing. <laughs> That's what this list is about, right? Yep. This is us wishing on a star for games that we really hope become reality one day. So 
for my number five, I'm probably going to be in the minority on this. But I think I've proven throughout the course of this show that I'm I'm very much a fan of games that allow you to relax, that don't really throw a lot of mm. stakes at you, that you know that that aren't meant to really stress you out too much. Obviously, I I'm a huge fan of Animal Crossing. I'm a huge fan of Feather and Abzu and other games of the like that we featured here on the show before. Oh yeah, and I'm also a huge fan of the Wii game endless ocean and its sequel endless Ah. ocean blue world honestly my number five i would finally love to see a new endless ocean sequel on the nintendo switch that is it does feel like that is an underrated series i really liked those games too and i know again i'm in the minority and i think that that was probably one of the reasons that the Endless Ocean series didn't do too well is because there were no stakes. It wasn't this big adventure. It didn't give you that same feeling of accomplishment that many other action and adventure games do. It's very much a laid back type of experience. But I really, really enjoyed it when it comes to Animal Crossing. Catching the fish and the bugs and filling out the museum is one of my favorite things to do in the game. I'm I'm very yeah. much that gotta catch them all mentality. I love finding stuff and cataloging and filling out books and and programs and you know if there's some type of book or notation or pro or some kind of mechanic like that in the game, I need to hundred percent that right. And th- I guess that was just something about endless ocean that really spoke to me. The environments themselves were really, really nice. It was a very slow, methodically laid back paced game, obviously, but finding all the different fish and finding and interacting with all the different environments as much as the abyss scared the ever living bejesus out of me going down (laughs) there and, and discovering everything that the ocean had to, to, to show us, the, the the sunken ship area in the original Endless Ocean and being able to befriend seals and different sea life and they would come up on your boat and interact with you and you could fill out this aquarium and there was a ton of little things to do. To see what you could do on the Nintendo Switch with that, to see the the ridiculous map that you could have with that, to see the ridiculous number of different marine species that you could interact with to see the ridiculous level of customization you could have with your aquarium i would i would put 300 hours into that game if they made it a reality and again i know i've said it a couple times before i know i'm in the minority on this but i personally would absolutely love to see an endless ocean sequel on the nintendo switch that's my number five there's a sort of like for lack of a better term, there's a quote unquote weird Nintendo that I miss. There's the Nintendo from that kind of like mid to late two thousands sort of era like that. That's sort of like, you know, in in that 2005 to 2009 zone, that DS, we maybe early 3DS era where they were just making experimental kind of games like endless ocean I miss that. I feel like we're not getting a ton of that anymore. Like we live in a world now where so many video games have to be safe bets. They have to be sequels. They have to be like tried and true franchises. I really miss 
getting something like Endless Ocean. And yeah, I mean, I'd be all over that if they did a third Endless Ocean. That'd be a day one for me. You wouldn't see me for a week. (laughs) Well, for my number four, something that, and I think I've even mentioned this particular woe here on the show before, but something that I honestly cannot believe has like our, that has not already happened is a proper 3d Kirby platformer. Ah. Like an actual 3d Kirby platformer, seeing that world realized in a 3d complete camera control kind of environment. I'm not talking about Kirby air ride, even though I liked <laughs> Kirby air ride. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an actual proper 3d Kirby platformer. I can just envision that so clearly in my head. And I just, it honestly blows my mind that we have not seen something like that already. You know, Kirby is a storied Nintendo franchise at this point. Kirby is sort of a, he's a tried and true character at this point for Nintendo. And, you know, we've, we've played plenty. I think Kirby is one of Nintendo's most consistent series, to be honest. I've, enjoyed the vast majority of them yeah kirby's adventure is better than super mario brothers 3 changed my mind oh that's a hot take (laughs) um (laughs) that's another discussion for another day uh but no it's i mean kirby has become a pretty iconic nintendo character and the fact that that just seems like such a logical progression to me 3d full-scale kirby platformer I don't understand why it hasn't already happened, especially now that we're sort of like, you know, with with, uh, with the Wii kind of era of Kirby, we sort of issued, you know, the Return to Dreamland kind of ushered in this like new style of 2D Kirby that we've sort of, it's kind of like run its course at this point, you know, now that Star Allies has kind of come out and it had its DLC and stuff like that. It's starting to feel a little long in the tooth and I, I really think that going the 3D route with Kirby could really give it a kick in the pants. And um, and I just, again, it's one of those things where I'm like, I just, I, I need this to exist. <laughs> We've gotten slight teases of a 3D style Kirby game in the past. There was, oh, that um, they had... Uh, like a mini game on one of those Kirby games that you've been talking about. I think it was Triple yeah. Deluxe or Planet Robobot, where yes, where they had th- where they had Kirby maneuvering in a 3D space, but it wasn't it wasn't traditional Kirby gameplay. It was you know much more restricted than that. So we we've had little teases here and there of that potentially being a possibility, but yeah. I would like to see the Super Mario 64 of Kirby games. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah, it felt like a little bit of like a dipping your toe in the water there. It it was just a little like, I was like, oh, like I want a full scope 3D Kirby platformer. Could you imagine if they did that, if they did that while bringing back combinable abilities from Kirby 64? Oh, it'd be so cool. You you could just do so much with it, man. I can just see it so clearly in my head. And like on the Nintendo Switch, like 3D platformers are already such a rarity. Like it's so criminally rare that like Kirby seems like the perfect franchise to do this with. I don't know, man. I I just, I want it. (laughs) Well, for my number four, you mentioned briefly when I was talking about Endless Ocean that you wish Nintendo would be more experimental, that they'd come out with more new IPs. To be fair, they have had a couple in the past couple generations. Splatoon was a really unique new IP that has been really, really successful. 
However, they have tried another IP that I feel that Nintendo isn't really getting behind in the same way they got behind Splatoon with. And Mm. I'm really afraid that we might not see another one as much as I would love to. I didn't put things on my list like DLC for Mario Party for Super Mario Party or a sequel to Super Mario Party because we know we're going to be getting another Mario Party game at some point. I didn't stick right. new Metroid game on there because we know at some point we're going to be getting a new Metroid game. We've already got Metroid Prime 4 in the works and, you know, who knows. But I I'm not 100% sure we're going to see Arms 2. Mm. yeah and i would really really like to it was the same team that did mario kart 8 and that's really all you need to know it was nintendo's attempt at doing a fighting game franchise outside of something like a party brawler like Super Smash Brothers. And of course, like Splatoon, when Nintendo decides to take on a genre, they are going to make their own incredibly unique stamp on the genre. And when it comes to fighting games, ARMS is certainly a ridiculously unique entry into the canon. And I really really loved it. I had an absolute blast every time I played uh, a good friend of ours, Phelan, uh, I know uh, is a, is a huge, huge fan. You know, we were actually trying to set up some tournaments. We played it together a bunch after work. I raged quite a bit. He can attest to that, <laughs> but still I, I just had so, so much fun with it. And they added so much content, free content at that post-launch. They added right. a bunch of new arenas and new characters and really fleshed out this world. They added new arms and new abilities and everything was just so fun and so tight and so great. And you know me, I'm a huge fighting game fan anyway. And it, it's it's sad that such a unique game like arms two may not happen, but I'm wishing upon that star. I really hope that we see arms two soon. I mean, legitimately some of the most unique fighting game characters, this side of street fighter three. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. When they announced Min Min for smash, you know, Min Min's my girl. <laughs> I was immediately, yeah, I was immediately drawn to Min Min when they first showed off her trailer for arms three years ago. And everything I saw about the game just made me fall in love with it even more. And when it came out, I just couldn't stop playing it. I love the process of unlocking the different arms. And even beyond just the fighting game mechanics, they had other game modes as well. You could play volleyball, you could play basketball, and they were so wildly fun. They took a fighting game and made a fun volleyball game out of it. It was so good. If you ever get online, it's an absolute blast. There's not too many games that I get online with because of you know, some toxic player bases, right? Not necessarily on a lot of the Nintendo titles, but admittedly some, but every time I got online with arms, uh, it's, it was just so, so much fun. Every time I didn't know if I was going to have to punch people in the face. I didn't know if (laughs) I was going to have to, to try to dunk on them. I didn't know if I was going to have to try to spike a volleyball, Uh, but, but all of it was fun. I enjoy doing every piece of it. There wasn't a single game there wasn't a single mode in arms that i didn't find enjoyable and i hope that if somehow some way we're able to get a sequel that we just get 
more. And that's all you can really hope for with a sequel or a follow-up is they do everything that made the game or movie or book or show great to begin with and just expand on it. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty much the perfect summation of, of ARMS right there is that like, I hope it gets a sequel and, and really all you want is just more of that. You just want it to be expanded upon. It's there's not necessarily like major, major complaints with the base. It's an excellent first entry. We just want a sequel that expands upon what you've already, the groundwork that's already been laid. Yeah. So, and I'm afraid that it has, it, I'm afraid it didn't do as well as Nintendo had hoped. So I'm not a hundred percent convinced we're going to see a second one, but I'm wishing upon that star that we do. Well, coming into my number three, it's another thing that I'm, I'm pretty positive and afraid may not ever kind of come back. So my number three is not one game in particular, as much as it is games plural, because if I'm sitting here wishing upon a star, God, I, I would really love to see the return of the proper virtual console. Oh yeah. I I mean, like, of course we've got, you know, the, the NSO, the Nintendo Switch Online, Super Nintendo, NES apps that get sporadically updated. That's all well and good. But I miss, from the Wii and the 3DS era, the proper virtual console. Yes, you had to buy the games piecemeal, and, you, and, and I was happy to. But having that, on the Wii especially, and the Wii U, like, being able to have games like Pokemon Snap... And like all these N64 titles and then like go, you know, going back to the NES and Famicom and like having generations of games that I've bought at my fingertips was amazing. And we've never really gotten back to that. And I know that Nintendo internally feels like the NSO benefits are sort of their answer to that, but it really doesn't even come close for me. There was something truly, and, and I, I know I'm going to sound like a total shill that, that like drank the Kool-Aid of the Wii for maybe too long, admittedly, but there's something, there was something truly magical about coming onto the Wii shopping channel on update day and seeing new virtual console titles, like new game releases, like that, that is a feeling that I miss. And honestly, like if I'm wishing upon a star, and I don't know that it's ever going to happen, but for the virtual console to properly come back, I, I mean, like that, that would just, I, I don't even know how I would react. I waited. I, I just assumed the GameCube virtual console was, was going to happen. I assumed it was a metaphysical yeah. certitude that once the switch came out, that we would be getting some version of a GameCube virtual console. And I would have bought every title. Now we have been able, we have gotten a couple GameCube re-releases. We got Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, which we've talked about here on the show. We did a full review on that. Go check it out. We did get Mario Sunshine in the phenomenal Mario 3D All-Stars pack, which actually recently got another patch, another update. But there are still so, so many GameCube games that I would love the ability to play on my Nintendo Switch. Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem, and Cubivore, and Pokemon Battle Coliseum, and all of these games that have not been released in any form since they came out on the GameCube. And I completely agree with you. When it came to the Nintendo Wii, you had Nintendo and Famicom, Super Nintendo, Super Famicom. You had Nintendo 64 games that were all downloadable on 
the the virtual Ugh. console and the Wii could still play GameCube games. So you didn't yeah. have you didn't have the full back catalogs of the NES, Super Nintendo and Nintendo 64, but you had really good selections of those games plus the ability to play GameCube games on the Nintendo Wii and especially I mean backwards compatibility does continue to be a major talking point especially with the release of the PlayStation 5 that you know, initially made promises of being fully backwards compatible. And now people feel right. like they're kind of left out in the rain on that. There's a lot of negative discourse going on about that right now. I completely agree with you. I I love having the NES and Super NES app. I love having those games. But yeah, Nintendo has entire back catalogs on the Nintendo 64 and on the GameCube and on the Wii and the Wii U that they really should make available that are still amazing games that people should still have the ability to play. Granted, yes, with the Wii U, we've gotten ports of most of those, but the argument still stands for the Wii and the Nintendo 64 and the GameCube. It matters. It just matters. Backwards compatibility does matter. Legacy and preservation does matter. And like, that's something, you know, perfect example, you know, just as a quick aside before we move on, like I mentioned earlier, my wife and I played bug snacks, like, she was looking for other games like bug snacks and, and you know, I'm like, well, this game is a lot like Pokemon snap and yeah, we have a new one coming out, but boy, it would sure be great if I had a way to show her Pokemon snap and introduce her to that game without having to literally dust off like a Wii or, or an, an actual N64. <laughs> oh yeah. It just, it'd be so nice to have virtual console on switch proper virtual console and like, yeah, I know you had to buy him piecemeal and stuff like that, but I'm, I would be happy to. If you want to drop GameCube games on a virtual console on the Nintendo Switch at 15, 20 bucks a pop, I'd still probably buy every single one. Yes. Of yes. And there's differences too with like things like remasters. There are people who want to play those games in their original form. I will look. My schedule will clear if and when they put out Twilight Princess and Wind Waker HD, but they're on the Switch. But there are people who want to play them in the original form too, and and I think that matters. I think that I think that's important. And uh, and again, yeah, if we're wishing on a star, that's got to be one for me. Well, my number three is actually taking kind of a similar uh, route as yours did, but instead of Nintendo, I'm talking a different company. For my mm. number three, I would so badly love to see a Sega non-Genesis collection. Oh, right, right, right. We get it, Sega. You had a lot of really good <laughs> games on the Genesis. We've talked already at length about one particular trilogy. We know you had Fantasy Star. We know you had Vector Man. We know you had Streets of Rage. We know you had a lot of iconic games on the Genesis. However, that wasn't your only console, guys. Yeah, where's the Dreamcast collection? Where's the Master System collection? Where's the Sega Saturn collection? Even the Sega CD collection? And yes, absolutely, for our friend Douglas Bogart over at Limited Run Games, where are the Dreamcast collections? I, I was going to say, think about Doug. <laughs> <laughs> there are so, so many amazing games out there. They just keep releasing Genesis Collection after Genesis Collection. You not only had Sega's Ultimate Genesis Collection on the PS3 and the Xbox 360, you had the Sega Genesis Collection for this generation that's made its way to all of the different platforms. You've had Sonic collections out the wazoo on everything. I think there was even a Sonic collection on the Virtual Boy at some point. 
we get it, guys. Aye, aye, aye. You had a ton of great games on the Genesis. But man, I would absolutely love to see some collections from your other systems as well. I would I would love to see a Master System collection, and I would absolutely love to see a Dreamcast collection. Yeah, there there's some, you know, like like we just said with the virtual console stuff, there's some amazing games that should be more readily available to be played on modern hardware. There just should. And and yeah, I'm in I'm in complete agreement. Uh, with the Dreamcast in particular, man, that that's that's the one thing where I'm like, God, I like, why is there not an easier way to play these games? I don't know. I can only only hope. So for my number two, I, I'm gonna go a little out of left field here. I'm gonna, I'm admittedly, I'm gonna be swinging for the fences here because th- this is something that I think may shock some people. This is a bit of a deep cut. Uh, we've talked about this series on the show before. Um, and <laughs> I would like to see this series revived on the Nintendo Switch, a series that has not seen an entry in almost 30 years. The series that I would like to see revived for Nintendo Switch is Star, Star Tropics. Tropics. Oh my God, I knew you were about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I really think that if handled correctly, if handled with that Nintendo uniqueness and... I, I really think that this could be Nintendo's Uncharted. You would take like the cinematic action adventure approach to it? In a sense. Like, I think it would be obviously kind of like Saturday morning cartoon kind of vibe. Um, and it would definitely be kind of more like colorful aesthetic. I mean, this is a Nintendo game. But in terms of the actual gameplay, third person exploration, kind of Indiana Jones Uncharted vibe, I, I could really see... Star Tropics having a really interesting revival on the Switch. And it's actually kind of funny because I was I was reminded of this when I was playing Animal Crossing today. And I had Gulliver, or Gullivar, rather, yeah. uh, on my island, and he makes a Star Tropics reference. <laughs> he actually talks about Korokola from Star Tropics and makes a reference to it. I'm like... Dude, like, did this actually just happen? I don't know if Star Tropics has been referenced or acknowledged in years. But Star Tropics, for those who have never played the game before, it is very much a top-down adventure game like the original Zelda titles were. It's it's almost like yeah. it's almost as like it's the Earthbound to Legend yeah. of Zelda, you know, like Earthbound was to Final Fantasy. Right, exactly. And I just, I envision it as this sort of like, you know, not not like a shooter, of course. This is, you know, again, this is a Nintendo, you know, a fied version of it. But like an exploration heavy on puzzles, an interesting like mystery behind it. Um, I, I could really see it working out in a really clever kind of revival on Nintendo Switch. And, and I had that thought in my head. And I haven't been able to get it to leave my head since. <laughs> I would love to see to see Star Tropics come back. I I know of a few people in the Twitterverse that would certainly agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. Maybe Mike Jones will show up in Smash Brothers and it'll spur an entire revival of the series like it happened with Pitt. That would be amazing. <laughs> I just, again, I, I had the thought and I was like, man, like... Uh, that kind of take on it. I, I can just envision it. And, you know, Doug Bowser, 
please make it happen. <laughs> well, you know, there was a reason that we spent so long just, you know, gushing with rainbows coming out of our mouths about Sonic Mania. <laughs> and that's just because the game is so, so good. But it feels like Sega almost... It's like Sega almost feels offended by its success that a bunch of fans <laughs> and independent studios did this when Sonic Team and Sega, their proper in-house development and publishing people, still right. can't seem to make it work. It really almost feels like they're offended by the success of Sonic Mania. I know that a lot of people have been waiting for an announcement, but... I don't know. I, I don't think it's coming. But again, I'm reaching up and wishing on that star. My number two, honestly, is Sonic Mania 2. I mm -hmm. Again, we spent how long just constantly gushing about every aspect of the game. And that is because the game, again, is, is almost darn near perfect. And it was... Again, a wish come true, a, a dream come true for millions and millions of Sonic fans and even video game fans in general. And man, would I love to see a sequel. My Lord, would I love to see Sonic Mania 2. Genuinely, I don't know if there's a sequel that I want to see more right now. And that includes mm. the newest mainline Zelda game that includes the newest mainline Mario game that includes the newest mainline Pokemon game. I think I would genuinely be excited for Sonic Mania 2 more so than any of those. Yeah, I think there are two schools of thought with that where like it's on one hand, you almost when when something comes out and is that like you said almost perfect like Sonic Mania you almost don't want a sequel to come out and have like the even run the even the slightest risk of like tarnishing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, if they could release a sequel to Sonic Mania, and and I I'm not gonna go ahead and say that like I think they are, but if they are, it would stand to reason that they are probably having to and and hopefully they're having to build the entire game from the ground up this time where. You know, it's not going to be remixed old stages and stuff like this. It's going to be completely fresh levels designed by the people responsible for Sonic Mania. I mean, that would be the dream. And I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I would be there day zero for that. No question. We've already talked about how amazing the game is for, for so long. I don't want to belabor the point, but yes, just to drive home the point one last time, the game is that good and i really really want to see another one all right well it's time to get to the top of my nintendo wish list here and for my number one and, and it might come off as as a trite at this point because i i really feel like i mentioned this series maybe a little too much and and i almost feel bad sometimes when i like bring up banjo kazooie on this show <laughs> Because I just love Banjo-Kazooie so much. It's one of my favorite games of all time. You know, I've made no secret about this since the beginning of this show. But I just have to be honest with myself, and I'm sorry, but my number one wish as it relates to Nintendo would be for either Banjo 3 or just Banjo as a series returning in some form 
to Nintendo hardware. Um, I know that Rare is owned by Microsoft. I know that this will likely never happen. <laughs> I know that uh, they've they've honestly probably been owned by Microsoft now longer than they were ever affiliated with Nintendo. But for me and for many, many other Banjo-Kazooie fans, this game just feels at home on Nintendo. And I loved the ports that they did on Xbox. I even liked Nuts and Bolts. Like, I know that's sacrilege, but I even, I did like Nuts and Bolts. <laughs> but it's it's never felt right on Xbox to me. It just has never felt right. And like, it just, it almost feels like I want Banjo to come home, you know? And we we have gotten a little bit of a blush with that because, of course, Banjo's been added to Smash and I still can't believe that that's a sentence I can say with sincerity. But it's it's not the same I want to be able to turn on my Nintendo Switch whenever I want and play Banjo-Kazooie. If that's a third game, if that's one and two-y, I don't care. I just want Banjo to come home. That's my number one. Well, Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie, especially the first one among the greatest 3D platformers ever made, regardless of 3D platformers to show up on Nintendo consoles. So, yeah, I mean... It would take a lot of doing, but we thought getting Banjo and Smash would take a lot of doing, and here we are. So I think with the sustained fervor that Banjo fans have been throwing constantly for two decades, I I, I think that of all the ones on this list, I think that one might genuinely be the closest to becoming a reality. And you know what's funny is, for a long time, I sort of carried a torch as a Banjo fan about like, oh, like Rare needs to... I don't even care if Rare does it anymore, to be honest with you. I really don't. Because when I look at something like the way that Toys for Bob has picked up the torch for Crash and like they've been able to make Crash 4 and it sounds like... I haven't played the game, but it sounds like it's a totally faithful and awesome sequel. Like, even if they give Banjo to somebody else to make a proper Banjo 3 and bring that to the Switch. I mean, I I feel like I would never ask for anything else in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see what happens, man. I'm pulling for you. But for my number one, I think this actually might be the only licensed game on either of our lists. Is that true? Mm, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of licensed games that I would like to see and it really is weird because it seemed like back in the the 90s especially you couldn't make anything without it getting inevitably a video game adaptation and yes a lot of them were terrible we all understand this i get it but the industry has come so so far and AAA studios are able to do so much And all they have to do, it seems, is make the right decisions, oftentimes that seem obvious, and you can put out a quality product. So it really surprises me that we don't see more licensed games come out, that we don't see adaptations of movies and television shows in mass like we used to, because there's so many that are begging for it. 
I mean, yes, I understand the Avengers game that just came out this year has gotten no end of flack. And it was kind of loosely based off of the MCU, although it is not the same character designs. It is its own universe and its own story. It was still it came into being because of the MCU. It just it wasn't that long ago that we were getting even like these kind of you know, C tier, like the, like the, you know, mildly enjoyable Captain America and Green Lantern games on 360. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And uh, like the cars, cars on the switch, the cars racing games. I I thought they're really good. I, I really enjoyed them. And there's so much potential there for licensed games that I feel is not being met. And there's a ton that I'd like to see. I'd love to see a Black Panther licensed game. I'd love to see a Moon Knight licensed game, a ton of different superhero licensed games like green arrow or green lantern that weren't necessarily based on movies because the green lantern movie game wasn't good but this is all just roundabout way of me saying that there is one product there is one intellectual property there is one series out there that it frankly blows my mind that it hasn't gotten a video game adaptation, that a video game adaptation hasn't been announced for it yet. Now, the character may be making cameos in some other titles, but my word, EA, why in the world have you not given us a Mandalorian licensed tie-in game yet? Yeah, yeah, I mean, EA has just completely bungled the Star Wars license, man. I am. It is shocking. It's one of the biggest television shows on the planet right now. You would probably get people who don't even play video games to buy that game. Or at least be interested in it. If only, if there was a Pat Baby Yoda button in that game, it would sell 10 million copies. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing, right? Like, EA's treatment of the Star Wars license has been so bizarre. I mean, we've gotten... A Battlefront game that came out and and made like no waves in the fan community. It sold well and everything, and but it was just whatever, kind of completely forgettable. Battlefront Two comes out and it's an, it's a huge like mess, and of course they fixed it and and they they made good with the fans at the end of it, but it was like too little, too late. We've gotten some mobile stuff, which is like whatever. Jedi Fallen Order, which was actually really good. And Squadrons, which I hear is good, but again, that's just like a, you know, a kind of like flight sim aerial combat game that was released at a budget price. That's all we've gotten out of EA and Star Wars for the past, what, six years? I mean, it makes no sense, man. A Mandalorian tie-in game would absolutely clean up. And if you put the same amount of care into that game as you did with Fallen Order. Yeah. That might single-handedly make EA reverse its stance on single-player titles. Well, and I think the the question that immediately comes to mind is like, well, like what would like what would the story of it be? But you could literally tell the same story from the, from season 1 or 2 and people would buy it. Yeah. Like literally it could literally be a video game adaptation of the events. If you guys are watching Mandalorian season two, you watch some of that stuff and it literally feels like something that I wish I was playing in a video game. It's 
And there's that's not the only Star Wars licensed game I'd like to see. I think it's time to try another Star Wars licensed fighting game. I think that would be really cool. And Mando should definitely be in that if they try it. But man, I just feel like they're leaving so much money on the table. And it's something that people, while not something that they're begging for, man, if if you announced a Mandalorian tie-in video game, a a direct Mandalorian tie-in video game, it would become it would immediately become one of the most anticipated new releases of the year. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it does feel like a missed opportunity. It does feel like something left on the table. It's one of those things that just makes sense. And you you could just be doing more with the license, you know, and it, it feels like something of a lost art. And again, I feel like it really does boil down to EA. I really do think the the onus is on them and the the way that they've handled the license doesn't give me any confidence that they're going to uh, improve. Yeah. Uh, but like, I think I even said this to you. If, if somebody like an Ubisoft had the license, we would very feasibly have a Mandalorian game. More than likely. So, I mean, it, it does sort of drive me crazy. It's, it's one of those things where I'm just like, I, I wish that deal would just like expire or something, or Disney would just say like, you know, forget this. I'm going to give the license to somebody else who will actually make video games. We can only hope. And again, this is us just wishing on a star, hoping that sometime soon, a couple of these dreams do wind up coming true. But what about you guys? Do you guys hate the idea of licensed games coming back into prominence? Do you think that all the games we want are absolute trash? What are your Wish Upon a Star games that you would love to see finally become a reality? Definitely reach out to us. Jen, I really want to know uh, about I a lot too. of these. because yeah. uh, I know there's a ton of amazing ideas out there. So do reach out to us and let us know. But speaking of games that have fulfilled wishes, games that have made players' dreams come true, there is one franchise that has arguably done that more than anything else on the planet, and that is the Super Smash Brothers franchise. Mm -hmm. Throughout its history, with the crossovers and the characters and the cameos and the stuff that Sakurai and the team over at Nintendo have been able to do, have been genuinely dream-fulfilling for so, so many people all over the world. So, so many fans and gamers all over the world. And it's been a while since we've done a retrospective. And with Super Smash Brothers Ultimate celebrating its second anniversary this week, we thought it was the perfect time to look back where it all began. We're talking about Super Smash Brothers this week in our all-in retrospective. So Super Smash Brothers was initially released on January 21st, 1999 in Japan, a long time ago. It was developed by HAL Laboratory and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo 64. Uh, hey man, are you a Smash fan by chance? Uh, per chance. <laughs> Mayhaps. Just a little bit? <laughs> Just a little bit, yeah. 
Well, I, it definitely seemed like the appropriate game to be covering on the show this week. I mean, with the announcement of Sephiroth for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, with the second anniversary of that game coming up this week, as you mentioned, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be talking about the game. And, and I mean, look, when this game came out, it was a phenomenon. Uh, I mean, it really was. It really is. Smash Brothers at this point is essentially the most anticipated release of every console generation, even more so than Mario's mainline titles, even more so than Zelda's mainline titles. Everybody, when a new Nintendo console comes out, says, okay, but what about Smash? It is their marquee franchise at this point. It is the biggest crossover in entertainment at this point. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, Avengers, Infinity War, Endgame, the MCU might be the most profitable, but Super Smash Brothers is the most comprehensive crossover in the history of entertainment at this point. And it all started back in 1999 on the Nintendo 64 with the very first game that is kind of surprising that it got made in the first place. It honestly shouldn't have been made. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like there th- that's one of the things that that I really love about doing these retrospectives and learning about the you know oftentimes the story behind the development of video games can be more interesting than the story in the games themselves and going back and and doing the research and and reading like the Iwata Ask interview series uh, for this game and stuff was so fascinating um learning and refreshing my memory on some of the development uh tidbits from this game I mean to just to, to to get into that, I mean, this game started off as sort of a an idea that you know young upstart Masahiro Sakurai had. Uh, it, it really kind of had in its nascent stages, anyway. It, it kind of had a really small scale before it became what it is. Yes, definitely very humble beginnings, but Sakurai had a very big advantage when it came to getting this game done. He had a good friend and a co-worker. Some of you may have heard him. His name is Satoru Iwata, helping yeah. him out on this project. And I've got to say, in retrospect, the fact that you had half of Nintendo's Mount Rushmore working yep. diligently to making to make this game a reality... It really isn't a surprise that it became as successful as it did. But, uh, I mean, just having Sakurai, having Awada both helming, both, you know, through force of sheer will, bringing this game into existence. I mean, it was ever only going to be a success. But... It it wasn't their main thing. It wasn't actually the main project that either one of them were working on at the time. They were both working on other things, uh, other projects, other games. And to the point where, uh, you know, there's there's all these famous stories of Awada, you know, coding in his off time. And we touched on that when when we talked about Awada on the fifth year of his passing. But one of the things he would do is he would do all of this off-the-clock work, all of this off-the-clock programming. And that's what he did with Smash Brothers, is he would work on his normal stuff throughout the course of the week. And he would spend his weekends, his off time, working and coding Smash Brothers. He was the lead programmer for the initial build of Smash Brothers. Sakurai was very much the idea man, the planner, the guy who came up with you know, a lot of the concepts, the models, the designs, and everything like that. And Awada was the main programmer for that initial build of Smash Brothers uh, over at HAL Laboratories. And 
it's just just super, super interesting. And we definitely recommend checking out the Awada Asks interview because there's a ton of really, really interesting information in there. And one of the things I find most interesting going back and looking at that is the fact that, you know, developers back then who were working with Nintendo, just like today, whenever they take on a genre, they always want to take the unique Nintendo spin on yes. it. When Nintendo decided to do an online third-person multiplayer shooter, they made something like Splatoon, where you right. weren't shooting people with bullets, you were splatting inklings with paint, and then they turned that into an entire mechanic. Uh, the next time they decided to do a fighting game, they did something like Arms. The right, and then you you've got Pikmin and Wonderful One Hundred One, and all these really weird, interesting ideas that seem to gravitate toward Nintendo and its sensibilities. So when they were going to do a fighting game, it was no surprise that they decided to take an extremely unique approach with it as well. And since the Nintendo 64 was out, it came out in September 1996. And, you know, you look at all the fighting games that were on the market at the time, Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter, certainly chief among them. But certainly in the 90s, there was this explosion of fighting games. It seems like everybody and their mother had released a fighting game by 1999. So frankly, it kind of surprised me that that they really wanted to work on one. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but I mean, like with Sakurai's sort of approach to this was like, Hey, like I want to make something that it's, it's that typical, again, very much in line with Nintendo's design philosophies, the, you know, easy to pick up and play difficult to master. And that, that sort of more accessible gameplay, bringing it to the home console, kind of juxtaposed to the other, you know, competitive, competitive fighting games, which are more like, taking the arcade experience and just bringing it home to varying degrees of success. He really wanted to do something that was quite a bit different, even if in the prototype stage, it wasn't Nintendo characters yet. In fact, the game's mm-hmm. working title in early development was Pepsi man, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was funny. Uh, Pepsi man is this obscure uh, Pepsi mascot. Uh, and and the, the prototype of the game had these like featureless polygonal characters that kind of resembled Pepsi man, because it was sort of like the idea first before we worked in the Nintendo characters into the mix. Yeah. The initial build that Sakurai and Awada, and there was an unnamed third person that was helping them out with the sound that I don't know if we've ever learned the name of for that initial build, but they did say there was another person helping them out with the sound for the initial build. But that initial kind of proof of concept did have four players in it. They were really wanting to push what could be done since they had Nintendo's new Nintendo 64 bright and shiny console to work with. But <laughs> the initial build they called, I apologize if I, I butcher this, uh, the pronunciation of this, the initial build was called Kakuto Gimo or Gimo Ryuo. And it stood loosely for, or translated loosely mm-hmm. to Dragon King, the fighting game. Yeah, if you remember the fighting wireframe characters from Super Smash Brothers, that's essentially, you know, more or less what the original characters were. And Sakurai and Awada both just wanted to see if they could make a four-person, in their words, battle royale-style fighting game. Sakurai said he saw all of these 2D he said he saw all of these 2D two-person fighting games flooding the market, and he really wanted to see if he could make a four-player battle royale game. That would be fun and interesting. And the thing that really 
you know, was was sticking out in Sakurai's mind was the the characters. You know, they they hadn't really had a clear idea. The game was very it was a it was an idea in its nascent stage. It didn't have you know, characters nailed down. I think the background art was literally just like pictures that Sakurai took of like the, the Japanese countryside. Yeah, the Ryuo, the last part of the, the project name actually came from the 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 neighborhood in Japan where, you know, they were where Sakurai took those pictures of. And it was based essentially the initial build was based on the backgrounds of that neighborhood. I would actually like right. to go. That'd be cool if we could go there. That would be kind of cool. Maybe when we uh, make our our Super Mario or Super Nintendo World trip, <laughs> take a little stop there. But uh, you stood where Sakurai stood. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, it, it honestly, it, it's cool to see those those kind of like again nascent ideas there. But but Sakurai wanted it to really stand out. I mean, the thing about arcade games is that you know arcade fighting games didn't really need to lean heavily on characterization or the player's relationship to the characters as much because in in the arcade scenario it's it's more about the gameplay it's more about fighting it's more about you know doing 1v1 against your friend in the arcade or whatever but in the home console space characterization was going to matter quite a bit more so he had this idea of like hey we've already got all these amazing pre-existing Nintendo characters like Donkey Kong and Mario and Samus and whatever and that was sort of the idea. Hey, we can make this fighting game. We've got the idea already. We've got this prototype. When it comes to the playable characters, let's make them Nintendo characters. And Iwata liked the idea. And he brought this idea up to Shigeru Miyamoto, who uh, very promptly said, no, we're not doing that. No, our characters are family friendly. You can't have them all punching each other in the face. There's no fisticuffs in Mario you know, stepping on turtles and Goombas and murdering them that way, perfectly fine. But actual fighting? No, that will not fly. Which is hilarious to consider when you actually watch the uh, that, that iconic commercial for the first game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, we'll definitely talk about that commercial. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, uh, but it was... What ended up happening, though, was Iwata has this meeting with Miyamoto, and Miyamoto says, no, you can't use Nintendo characters. Iwata goes back to Hal and chooses not to tell Sakurai Miyamoto's reaction and basically says, hey, go ahead and make a playable demo anyway. And he has this idea to make the demo and to bring it to Miyamoto and essentially change his mind. I mean... I love stories like this. <laughs> and that it very much mirrors the development of Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. Yeah. Yeah. So I, <laughs> this would all be speculation, but I can certainly understand the train of thought for Sakurai and Awadi wanting to use Nintendo characters because obviously we've already talked about Sakurai's feeling that when you just have a quick one-on-one, when you just have a very brief arcade right. experience with the game, you don't necessarily have to have a deep connection with the characters versus when you're going to own a game and play through a game on a console. But Hell Laboratories, of course, very famous for developing Kirby, the Kirby franchise, yes. which was co-created by Awada and Sakurai. And Kirby initially, some people don't know this, Kirby was the placeholder character for his own game. And then they just wound up using him as the main character of the franchise anyway. So which is hilarious. Yeah. I could very much see how they were working on the game and seeing these placeholder characters. 
And all of a sudden that reminding them of another series they created and thinking of Kirby and having that right. thought of Kirby in this established Nintendo character, I can very easily see how that would immediately translate to, hey, what if we put Kirby in this game? Hey, if we have other established Nintendo characters in this game. Again, right. that's all speculation, but it would not surprise me at all if that was the train of thought that led to Super Smash Brothers, that led to Dragon King becoming the crossover event that it was. That that completely tracks, and I think that would you know totally make sense. Of course, again, like you say, we we don't know this, but that that would make perfect sense. But they do, you know, Sakurai does make this demo, and the original demo featured four playable characters: it was Donkey Kong, Samus, Fox, and Mario. And they bring this demo to Miyamoto again, completely working on this in secret in their spare time, doing it against Miyamoto's wishes, essentially just on the, on the strength of, Hey, let's prove him wrong. Basically, like you said, very similar to Link's awakening, very much like a, Hey, let's work on this in secret and just prove them wrong. And in line with Link's awakening, Miyamoto was impressed with the demo. It went well. And uh, full production of the game was then authorized, and they were off to the races. I'm sure they would have liked to have included Kirby in that initial build, but given Kirby's copy ability, I'm sure he was probably the most difficult character to implement in Smash Brothers. Right. Yes. Yeah, well, and I mean, the game in general had a lot of, like, technical restraint, um, which is something that I definitely wanted to touch on, because the, like... There's a lot of stuff, a lot of little tricks that they had to utilize. And, and I do have to wonder, I, I have to imagine that Awada helped out greatly with this, just sort of getting the most out of what they had. They had a mm-hmm. finite amount of like polygons that they could display on screen. I think I read that to make the game run the way it did, I think they had only like 150 polygons to render the stages with. So That's crazy. Which is like a fifth of the polygons used in the super mario model for super mario 64 exactly that alone is nuts so they they had to do little tricks like they had to you know a lot of the game's characters like they reuse animations from the other characters like a good example of this is like captain falcon famously utilizes a lot of these same animations as samus samus yeah um and and he actually he takes a lot of his his move set from the initial Dragon King prototype as well. So they had to do a bunch of little stuff. They they really made a lot out of a little with this game. Yeah, Sakurai has always been very gameplay focused. He he's never wanted the gameplay to stifle or suffer at all. Very noticeably, Super Smash Brothers doesn't appear as visually polished as many other Nintendo games on the Nintendo 64. And that was for all the reasons that you just described, because Sakurai wanted to make sure that there was never a dip in frame rate, that that everything always ran as smoothly as it possibly could to make for the most enjoyable experience for the player. So the fact that they were able to do as much as they were with the game still kind of impresses me, because the game still plays... It still plays very, very well for a Nintendo 64 party game like that. Yeah, I mean, it's still being played competitively, you know, to this day. Oh, yeah. But, of course, they were able to fully fund the project. They were able to get it out the door, and they were able to release the amazing Super Smash Brothers onto the world. Now, they did a few things in Smash Brothers I do want to touch on. First of all... Up until Super Smash Brothers, up until 1999, Luigi 
despite his appearance in, in Super Mario 2 that started to differentiate him from Mario a little bit, if you notice Luigi's animations and his mannerisms in Super Smash Brothers, they could right. have very easily used a lot of the same animations and a lot of the same facial expressions that Mario had in Smash Brothers. However, they did decide to give Luigi a lot of his own facial expressions and mannerisms. So even before Luigi's Mansion came out, Super Smash Brothers was really where Nintendo was starting to stretch the difference between Mario and his taller brother. And I really, really appreciate that. It's subtle, and it's really not until we get to Luigi's Mansion that it starts to to really become evident. But the seeds of who Luigi would become were planted here in Super Smash Brothers, and I thought that was really cool. Right? Yeah, and I mean, like we can talk about you know the 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 game. The final build, of course, has got the eight initial playable characters, four unlockable characters. But like, what to touch on something that you said earlier? with Sakurai being very gameplay focused, you know, he had several characters that he wanted to include in the game, but didn't get a chance to characters like Bowser, um, DDD, which is a character that Sakurai is very personally attached to. Of course. You two Marth, which he wanted to include for gameplay purposes. Cause he wanted to have another sword user that would be more unique and have a different flavor than link. I think they were even talking about because of the Pokemon animes popularity. I think they even at one time were talking about putting Meowth in the game. So there's there's some stuff that Sakurai didn't quite get to fully realize. But um, still, just with the very simple, you know, compared to what we have now in Smash Ultimate, we've got, what, 70 plus playable characters? Bordering on 100 now. Oh, my goodness. I, it's crazy. And, and I mean, just to start off with a scant, you know, eight and then four unlockable characters, just crazy, crazy to see where it started. But if you look at the roster of Super Smash Brothers, a lot of people may make it seem like it wasn't a sure thing. But I mean, in all honesty, if you look at what Super Smash Brothers was trying to do, it was it was really always going to be a success for a couple reasons. Despite the fact that even after unlockable characters, the roster was only 12 characters. Look at who those 12 characters were. You had Mario and Luigi, you had Donkey Kong, you had uh, Link, you had Fox McCloud, you had Kirby, you had Pikachu and Jigglypuff and Ness. Just right there was basically the entire encapsulation of Nintendo at the time. It was very much the, the Justice League concept is, you know, we have all of these established characters that have all of their fan bases already there. If we put them all into a single product, if we put them all into a single game, we essentially have the combined exposure of all of these fan bases. And especially in the late 90s, another thing about the late 90s, it was very, very important that Pikachu was a part of this game because yes. in the late 90s, Pokemon was just an absolute juggernaut. It was everywhere. Absolutely everywhere and having Pikachu and Jigglypuff who some people wonder what put Jigglypuff into the game. It was the fact that in the early seasons of Pokemon Jigglypuff was an extraordinarily popular yep. recurring character, not an often recurring character, but Jigglypuff did show up a couple times in the Pokemon anime series and was a wildly popular addition to the anime. That's the reason that Jigglypuff showed up in smash was her popularity in that anime series. 
and the fact that you could play as Pikachu, the fact that you could play as Jigglypuff in this game, and then all of these other Nintendo icons, that was only ever going to be successful. And there was another thing that basically ensured that this game was always going to be successful. Uh, you can look at the market research and, and wonder about whether or not this type of game was going to catch on. But think about it. When you're in the schoolyard, when you're having discussions, yep. this is better than this. Sega over Nintendo, Marvel over DC. What does it always come down to? Who could beat up who? Yep, I bet I bet Link could beat up Mario. Exactly. That's what it always comes down to. This character is better because they could beat up your favorite character. Right. And now, yep. finally, you had a game where you could put your money where your mouth was. And settle it in Smash. <laughs> settle it in Smash. Smash Brothers was only ever going to be successful. Now... The fact that it was brought to us by two absolute legends of the industry didn't hurt because had they absolutely dropped the ball with it somehow, then yes, it would have gone the way of the unfortunate, you know, it would have gone the way of the Star Tropics of the world. Uh, still hope you're right about that, buddy. Me too. But not, not just the characters they put in, the fact that they chose to have stages from those characters' games. Not only yep. characters you recognize, but locations that you recognize. The fact that, just like in Mario Kart, they decided to throw in items so you could use items that you were familiar with. And the fact that you could throw Pokeballs, that you could wield ray guns from Star Fox, the fact that you could use power hammers from Donkey Kong. It wasn't just the characters, it wasn't just the locations, it wasn't just the items. It was everything coming together in this, you know, huge ball of fan service, which of course is what the series would become famous for. But when you throw all of those elements into a blender and code it properly, Smash Brothers was was a success even before it came out. It's just, I mean, it's just an amazing idea. And actually just even hearing you just list off the basics of what Smash Brothers is... Just even just listening to the description, I actually still can't believe all these years later, still can't really believe that this is an actual thing that exists that I can play. Like, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's an absolute dream come true, which is why we're talking about it. And and I mean, and talking about the school, you know, the schoolyard stuff, I, I feel like we, you know, we've talked about the development history, we've talked about what the game is, talked about the characters and the stages. I feel like we should talk about our personal history with this game a little bit. In the retrospective, I mean, what, with this game in particular, where do you come at it? What's your personal history with it? With the first game, you know, it's admittedly kind of weird for me. I'm not going to lie, because even in my young, even in my young age at the time, I still very much considered myself a fighting game aficionado. I was a huge, huge fan of Mortal Kombat and Killer Instinct mm -hmm. and a lot of the weird fighting games that were coming out around that time. I loved SNK, Samurai Shodan, King of Fighters. I loved a lot of the, the oddball fighting games that were coming out, like War Gods and Primal Rage and stuff like that. But they were all kind of similar. They all had these fighting game tropes. And then Nintendo comes out with this kind of a fighting game that was just so weird and unique. And I was such a hardcore fighting game fan that initially I was kind of put off by the idea. It felt so weird and so disjointed from all the other fighting games that I was playing. 
I certainly played it. I didn't own a Nintendo 64 at the time, but I had friends who did. And I went over to their house and trying to play a fighting game on a Nintendo 64 controller as well. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Trying to play anything on the Nintendo. I love that controller, but trying to play anything on it is a, is a bit of a challenge. It's not built for human hands. No, it's not. But there were some things that really got me into it. Again, the allure of having all of these Nintendo characters in one space. And we talked earlier about accessibility for having all of that familiarity with all of those characters and locales. Another big thing that made the game so accessible was the control setup. You didn't have Mm -hmm. to memorize these 10 button combos. You didn't have to memorize these pretzel joystick motions to be able to perform impressive attacks no fatality combos yeah the controller setup for each of the characters was incredibly simple you had an a button and a b button and different attacks that would occur based on the direction you were pressing those buttons at the time so an incredibly simple setup and incredibly easy to to pick up uh ideal ideology when it came to the controls so it just made it really really easy to jump in But, you know, I I tried it a few times, and if I'm being completely honest, it really wasn't until Super Smash Bros. Brawl that the series really got its hooks in me. I Mm -hmm. played Melee, I played uh, the original a couple times, but I, I still, it's not that I thought it was a bad game at all. It was just, there was, there was something about it, something odd and off the wall. I appreciated it, I knew what it was. But I don't know, maybe I was just some some fighting game snob, some you know, <laughs> fighting game master race looking down my nose at, at Smash Brothers at the time as not a true fighting game. Because let's be honest, it's really not a true fighting game. It is something all its own. And yeah. I have very much come to appreciate that. I don't really even see it as a fighting game. I mean, it definitely holds the record right now for the best-selling fighting game of all time. But... I still, I, I still think of Smash Brothers more as a party game than a fighting game. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely love it. It's, it is. It's so unique. It's kind of hard to like hold it up against the, like you said, the very combo heavy, the very precise Street Fighters and Mortal Kombat's of the world and stuff like this. So I, I get it, and and especially you know being so ingratiated with fighting games, I can definitely see how this one wouldn't necessarily appeal to the same kid who knows every fatality in Mortal Kombat and stuff like this. You know, it's not, it's not really going to scratch that same itch for you. Um, what's funny is uh, for me, I, I liked fighting games as a kid. I, I enjoyed them. I, I loved stuff like street fighter and stuff, but I, but I was not nearly as hardcore into them. So when smash came out, my first exposure to it was, uh, my childhood friend, who I think I've mentioned a couple times on the show before, Justin, my childhood friend, um, had a copy of the game. And <laughs> the concept of something that that you mentioned, again, going over to your friend's house and them having something, like some of our younger listeners may not be really familiar with that concept. But when we were growing up, like you would go over to your friend's house so much and like stay the night with your friends and play their games with them and stuff. It was almost like you owned it too, you know, <laughs> like, like it honestly felt like that sometimes. So it was like, okay. Like I felt like it was okay that I didn't own it because he owned it. So I didn't actually own a copy of smash 64 for myself until well into the GameCube era. Um, 
I was always a Nintendo kid growing up and the N64 in particular was a very special console to me. But for whatever reason, and I, I really do think it was because it was just so accessible to me, I could just pop over to Justin's house and play it whenever I wanted. I don't think I ever felt like I needed to own it myself. Um, and because it was such a party game kind of thing, it, it admittedly probably felt weird to me to have a copy to just play by myself. Um, so I think that's why I never owned it. But then when Melee came out, I got so into that game, man, and ended up going back and, and getting a, an old copy of the 64 game because I was still playing my 64 well into the GameCube era. And uh, Smash just had such an interesting vibe to it that I don't think any other N64 game, certainly, but even in the GameCube era, or and even today, I don't think anything quite feels the way that Smash does. It is so unique. It is so unlike other fighting games. It just carved out a little path of its own for me. And even if I, I, I do kind of agree with you, I don't really hold it in that same category as other fighting games. And it doesn't really occupy that same space in my mind. But like it just scratches a certain itch. There's just something about Smash that feels like coming home. <laughs> I certainly agree with you. Despite the fact that it it may have sounded like I was dogging on the game a little bit, that's absolutely not the case. I Every opportunity I had to play Smash Brothers, I still took. And yeah. ad- admittedly, a big part of that was the commercial. Yes, we have got to talk about the commercial. It's so good. So if you've never seen the original commercial for Super Smash Brothers on the Nintendo 64, it may legitimately be the best commercial Nintendo has ever done. I will put a link to this in the uh, in the episode description because it, it needs to be viewed by everybody if you've not seen this. <laughs> but uh, didn't they use like a licensed song for it too? Like you, they used you, Happy Together. Yeah, they used Happy Together. Yeah. And they showed Mario <laughs> and Donkey Kong and Pikachu and Yoshi all skipping through this field of flowers while Happy Together plays in the background. And this was all real life. It was people in costumes. It wasn't animated. But all of a sudden, Mario trips up Donkey Kong. He falls, and then it just turns into this all-out brawl between these people in the costumes leading to, I think, Donkey Kong getting smashed in the face with a hammer and Pikachu getting, like, seismic tossed by his tail over everybody's head. It was just wonderful. It's absolutely amazing. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Again, just everything about it, just the very tongue-in-cheek presentation. It was probably Nintendo's best commercial they've honestly ever done for a game. Maybe still. Yeah, maybe still. still. <laughs> Honestly, I I loved it. There, there's just something like there's something intangible about that era. Maybe it just occupies that space in our minds from like that childhood, like kind of nostalgia, the nostalgia of the N64. But like that was just so cool. Taking those like playground arguments and being able to bring them to actual fruition. The fact that I was such a Zelda fan, still am, but being able to like play as Link and beat up you know Mario and Donkey Kong and be in like, you know, Hyrule Castle or, or whatever, that that feeling is still unmatched really to this day. Well, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, when it comes to commercials and marketing and the, the reputation of your game specifically, the Dreamcast also came out in 1999 and it really felt mm. like 
It really felt like with the Dreamcast and everything beyond the Dreamcast, all the marketing was based around how powerful the machine is and how much better this machine is than our competitors or our previous machine. The entire marketing for the Dreamcast was, you know, it's thinking, you know, it's such an advanced machine. It's so powerful. It can do whatever you want it to do versus everything before that, the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the original PlayStation, all of Sega's commercials. You know, you talk about all your blast processing and stuff, but there was very much a focus on how fun the games were going to make, you know, how much you were going to enjoy the games, how much fun you were going to have with the games. And there was, there was definitely you know, even when the companies were riffing on each other, even when you were talking about Genesis does what Nintendo don't, there was still right. this, there was just still this, this aura of fun to be had. But now everything seems to be almost surreal and dreamlike. If you look at all of PlayStation and Xbox's commercials that are out right now, it's all weird. It shows two people looking up at each other from, it's almost like modeling commercials now for video games. But back in the 90s, it was just, it was all in your face. It was all just about having fun. And I really feel like the Smash Brothers commercial was very much the tail end of that ideology when it came to gaming marketing and everything after that was just, you know, again, like cologne and modeling commercials. It really just boils down to, and and I'll, I, I, I always think of this Iwata quote, you know, video games are meant to just be one thing, fun for everyone, you know, and like... That really does just run through the lifeblood of, of all Nintendo games and, and certainly uh, Super Smash Brothers. And then, of course, just two years later, Super Smash Brothers would prove that it was not just a one and done franchise, that it would become the flagship franchise for the big end. But we think that might be a story for another day. But definitely let us know what are your guys' favorite memories of the iconic, the amazing, the legendary Super Smash Brothers on the Nintendo 64. Do please reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with this week. I genuinely hope all of your holiday wishes come true. For us, it's time to look toward the end of the year. And next week, mm-hmm. make sure to be right back here as we take a look back at the year in Nintendo 2020. It has definitely been a very interesting one, to say the least. So we'll have all of our thoughts on that and our games of the year next week. We'll see you then. I have been doing Eric Roll. And I have been Seth Superstar Ultra. Yeah, guys, definitely be sure to tune in next week. Come back and hang out with us. We are going to blow out the Game of the Year talk, and we're going to send 2020 off with a bang. But until then, stay safe, be well, have a happy Hanukkah uh, for those who are celebrating, and we'll catch you guys next week. Bye.